right. And I think that puts us up and working. Let me check. Yes, everything is on. Hello, hello. Welcome once again to Submerge World. I appreciate you coming by today. We are going to really get into some meat today. And I don't mean like eating or anything. Meat of the story, if you will. Today's Merge World episode is going to be uh, a little different in as much that there's going to be a lot of introductions today. Uh, we're going to cover uh, through the story. They're going to run into, our characters are going to meet quite a few people that are going to be very important moving forward. Uh, so some of them will, some of them won't. You guys will have to figure out which one is which. But uh, we are going to run into a bunch of new faces today. And I have a bunch of cool pictures, or at least the actors and actresses that I use to represent those characters. Usually it's a, it's a good sign if I have a picture for someone that that person's probably going to be around for a while or be seen again eventually. Uh, so that's a, a good hint, if you will. Hello, Teresa. Welcome to the chat. And Kululi, uh, how tight is your community as a whole? This is interesting because it seems like you know most of your fans. Um, I do my very best to do so. Um, so far, community-wise, I feel it's, it's pretty tight. Um, the Discord is very active. Um, I do my best to interact with it as much as possible. Um, Neon and Gus, my moderators, are good friends of mine, and they jump in, and, and we really try to help each other out. So you know, the Discord makes a big difference. I agree with Neon there. And I do my best to try to answer and, and stay in contact anytime anybody asks questions. Sometimes it can take a bit for me to get to them, but there's a lot, but I do my very best to get back. So, um, you know, I try to keep in touch with everybody. So, uh, yeah, I feel the community is, is tight and only growing tighter uh, as, as more friendly faces pop in. Uh, so, happy to see you as well as everyone else popping in to say hi. Um, hello, Philip. So, again, today is, is going to be an important day. Uh, one thing, I have to make a <laughs> little bit of alterations to something that happened. Um, luckily, Going through notes of the story and, and just, you know, refreshing some of the things to myself, I rolled across a chapter of when I first started to try to write this at one point, and the part we're at right now is what I wrote down. And it reminded me of a couple things that I might have slightly forgotten, so I'm going to work them into the story here, uh, as well as a couple actual... Uh, little spigots of what actually happened in there. So that's pretty cool. I've got a lot of photos to share of new uh, new and returning characters that are going to pop up that we're going to see more often. Um, and if they feel brave enough to come down and visit, you may also get a cameo shot of some of my new kitties. We adopted three cats yesterday, and they're still kind of skittish, uh, but they have been uh, ranging around the house a little bit more. Today's the first day I've let them come down into the basement because I want them to get used to the upstairs first. But they have come by a little bit, and if they come by close enough that I can snatch one, I'll show you my new kitties. At least some of them. The one that I actually chose out for myself is probably the most skittish, and she has not come down here yet, so I don't know if we'll get to see Buffy. Uh, but Patches and Midnight have been roaming around as much as possible. Um, so we're going to uh, kind of retouch base on where we left off last time. Um, luckily, my notes are here to help. I have some, like I said, pictures, and I have some... Uh, interesting actual D&D specific stuff for people who role play. Um, some of the things that I use to define my world and my way of playing. I'm going to feed a little bit more of that into it as we're going through as well. So it won't be just story for people who are interested in role playing or anyone who might be interested uh, in eventually role playing on Merge Worlds with me running a story. Uh, these are things that will be uh, probably helpful for, to you as well. 
Um, so right off the bat, I'm going to start with a picture. Uh, this is just uh, a fan art. Um, the young lady who played the character of Artemis and Darsh. Um, loved both of them, but Artemis was definitely her prime, uh, prime character. And the other young lady who played Mercy and Dandy, Mercy was really her prime. Um, and they have a very close friendship and that only continues throughout the story. And so they had a habit of going and seeking out artists to do fan art of their characters. And I found a couple of those today roaming through my D&D pictures and I thought I would share one. I can't share the others because that will give away parts of the story later, but I found one. Hey, thank you very much, Snow. Steam LH for following. Mm -hmm. Alright, so this is a fan picture that they had drawn of Mercy and Artemis uh, a very long time ago. And I found it today. It's a little bit kind of anime-style art there. Um, Artemis's hair is yellow. The artist took some some creativity there. But uh, that's basically the concept of Mercy and Artemis, some art there. Um, I mention that because I'm hoping here in the very next little while to do a fan art contest on the channel. Um, and the fan art can be of anything. It can be the Minecraft streams, my Minecraft dude, uh, Merged World stuff. Thinking about putting together a contest for that here in the next couple weeks. So if you have an artistic style of any kind, whether it's drawing or you want to build something in Minecraft and film it, whatever, um, or you want to sew something physical, whatever, I'm going to, I'm looking at getting a PO box because I had someone who was interested in sending some fan art already. So I'll be looking into that, you know, once the world calms down a little bit. Um, so stay tuned for that. But we're going to go cover where we left off. So where we started last time, everybody was dead, if you'll remember. And they were brought back to the world of the living by Zoltan, the demigod, uh, also known as the thorn in the side of everybody, or the gray man. Um, he was managed them back. Didn't really say how. He actually did, but I forgot that part. So we're going to cover that here in a little bit. Uh, but he brought them back and then said, hey, I don't know what happened to the rest of your friends. The magical weapons and artifacts that you're looking for are trapped inside of these magical stones. Um, and you have to get all the stones together to be able to open up the interdimensional plane port hidey spot that these weapons are currently in. Um, and that they're somewhere in the world, but I don't know where. No tricky amulet this time to tell me where they're at. Um, and then suggested that they head south, that there's a city called Paxawal on the edge of a great ocean. If they go down there, they should be able to get some help. Uh, they proceeded to travel with very little. Uh, they had no real supplies. Their clothes were almost in rags. They had no real weapons other than a, an old dagger they found and some a busted sword and an old shield, that kind of stuff. But they made their way south, uh, traveled for days until they finally came across a small uh, farming community uh, where the people there were very friendly because, of course, Artemis being a cleric of healing uh, was very accepted. Uh, they were given a little bit of uh, direction and told that there was a small town not far from there uh, with a with a small temple in it that maybe they could go there to get some help, which they did. Now, I don't remember, and I apologize if I did, if I told everybody the name of the priest in that town. And it's Brother Wendell, for the record. I wanted to point that out. So they went uh, to this town, and they came in there, and they found Brother Wendell, uh, who was a cleric of the light, and he welcomed them into their into the small temple of the town. Uh, and after talking with them and learning what they were involved in and all the stuff, uh, especially with the big citadel, because I'll tell you, uh, I didn't really cover this, the, the people of this area know about that battle. 
I mean, they're only, they live a week, week and a half from where one of the largest battles since this world was created happened. Um, and a giant floating castle fell out of the sky. You're going to hear about that. That's going to make the paper. Um, so, um, they know about that. So, they told Brother Wendell about their part of that and such. And he's like, oh, okay, that's big, that's big news. And so, he came to them uh, the next day and was like, hey, I'd like to ask you something. Um, there is a door that I can't get into um, several days from here. And there's something in there that I need. And if you get it and you can return it to the temple, then you uh, would probably get a lot of you know, grace. They would they'd look favorably upon you and maybe more helpful for you in your quest um, if, if you were to do that. Uh, because this is something... Look, and they agreed to do that. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about that interaction that I didn't go into detail last time uh, because, again, I missed some stuff. Uh, so I want to touch on that. Um, one of the things that Brother Wendell tells them is that he was sent here by the Temple of the Light over 20 years ago. He was a scholar. Um, he was not a combat-style cleric. He was just very, very intelligent, very... Uh, uh, knowledgeable of things of this nature. And he was sent here to find this door. They'd locate it, and they, he basically sent him here to get in. Because there's something in there they wanted him to get. But they sent just him. They didn't make any big fanfare of it, because they did not want to draw any attention to that. Um, that was 20-some years ago, and he's been here ever since. Now, this is, a, this is the big part that I forgot to mention last time. He made it in the first door. It took him about 15 years to figure out how to get in the first door. But once he did, he got into a large chamber, that's what he tells them, of several different doors, and he's not been able to get through any of those. That's where he's stuck. And he's like, if you can help me do this, you know, normally I was supposed to get it and take it back, but this is my home now. This is where I live. I like being the priest of this town and helping these folks. No one's, they haven't sent messages for me in years, so I mean, it's clearly not important that I return. If you take it back to them, hey, you're helping me complete my quest, and I get this weight off my shoulders, and you can get it there. Companions are like, okay, sounds like a good deal. It was a quest of importance. We show up with this. We're the ones that helped you get it. Probably in good standing. That sounds like a good idea. They ask, what is it that's in there? And he says, I only know that it's a golden box. And within that box is something that is not meant for mortal eyes. I was to get the box, bring the box back to the temple, telling no one, I'm clearly breaking that rule, about this whole situation. And most importantly, not to open the box. Because to do so could unleash hell upon the world. He goes, now... That was back before the Great Merge happened, and obviously hell's already been unleashed upon the world, but I don't know if this hell is worse than that hell. A lot of business going on there. So they're like, okay, well, we'll, uh, we will definitely take upon this quest because we definitely could use some good grace. He says, excellent. Since you're going to help out, I do have some funds here at the temple. I'm going to help supply you with the basic stuff you're going to need. I'm not going to send you in there with some pointy sticks. We're, we'll give you, I'll give some coins. You can go into town tomorrow, get the basic gear you need, get you some decent weapons, maybe some decent armor, foodstuffs, whatever you need. Um, as for 
holy stuff, like a new robe for Artemis, and, you know, he has a couple small healing potions, because, you know, as a priest, it's something he's going to gather up. He'll give her that, because he's entrusting it to another cleric. Um, even though she's a healy cleric, you can't turn down no healing potions when you can get them. Um, and they agree to this interaction. Now, the next day, they went out into town, and that's where a young man from the farming community was following them, and they managed to kind of ambush him. They realized someone was following him. And he introduced himself as Tobias. And Tobias uh, was a, just a young man, probably about 15 or 16, uh, had always wanted to be a mage. He had a family member that was a mage, but the family member died, so his family was kind of forbidding it. And he kind of ran away to follow them because he wants to go to Paxival, where the great mage tower is, to try to get into, like, mage school. He knows a little bit of magic. He has some of his, I think it was cousin or uncle's books. He's taught himself a little bit, and they're like, listen, your family's doing this to protect you. Where we're going, it's going to be super dangerous. We really just can't have a kid mage wannabe. They're friendly about it, but they're, that's, they're like, you know, we can't have that. You're just going to get killed, and we don't want you to get hurt, so you should probably go home, and he said, okay. Um, now, some people in the Discord channel were discussing Tobias, and some people thought he might end up being a villain down the road or something else. I was intrigued by the different strings of conversations they were making. But I will tell you this. I have a picture for Tobias. So as I've mentioned, if I have a picture for someone, somehow they're going to be important later. And so this is the actor that I use as Tobias. Uh, he's been in a bunch of stuff. He was in a Sky High movie. Um, he was in the Forbidden Kingdom, Jet Li, Jackie Chan movie. Love that movie. Uh, but he's a younger version of that. Like I said, somewhere around 15, 16 years old. I apologize. I do not know the actor's name. Again, I fail in that regard. Um, but I've always liked him in the few things that I've seen him in. Uh, so he is our young lad, Tobias. So I wanted to bring his picture up. Uh, if you are watching this later or listening to this on iTunes after the fact, um, these pictures that I'll be showing today, I will be posting up on OnlyDraven.com uh, tomorrow while I'm posting up the... Um, the podcast. Uh, so if you're watching this later or you're listening to it audio and you'd like to see these pictures again, swing on over to onlydraven.com. There's a tab called characters at the top. It'll show you pictures of all the different actors and art that I've already shown in previous videos for the different characters that I'm using. So that is our boy Tobias. I do not have a picture for Brother Wendell. Just saying. So... They're given some, uh, some money, um, basically, not even some money, they're basically given a, a thing from the saying, hey, we're representing the temple. He goes, you take this down to the blacksmith, you take it to the, the all-good stores, and uh, they will basically charge it to the temple. You'll get good rates because I'm the one paying for it. Everybody knows me here. Um, I'm, their t I'm their priest. I do their weddings. I do all that stuff. So they are, okay. So they basically tell Tobias to bumble off, and then they go shopping. And they go to a blacksmith, and they get some basic weapons. Uh, Mercy gets a morning star and a shield. Darsh gets a uh, sword and a shield. He also um, had a battle axe. Everybody got some daggers. Uh, Dandy has, at this point, just a small quarterstaff like Artemis, because she's still making her hoop pack. Um, she's, work she's been working on it for a while now, so she should have something relatively soon in the story. Uh, if you're not remembering what a hoop pack is, it is a kender weapon. Uh, it is a staff sling, so imagine a thin staff that forks at the top with a sling in it, so almost like a, uh, what do you call it, uh, a slingshot. The bottom of it has a metal tip, and you can unscrew the top and bottom, and it becomes a blow dart gun. Very common kender weapon. And then Artemis, she just has a quarter staff, they get some stuff. After they get their weapons and armor, they go to the 
All Goods Store. As approaching the All Goods Store, they see there's a sign hanging over it that says Bertram's All Goods. And Artemis and Mercy kind of look at the sign for a second, and then Darsh says, didn't we go into a Bertram's All Goods back in Arduel? And Arduel was the kingdom where they met Prince Christopher and helped him uh, take back his, his kingdom in one of the earlier episodes. You're like, yeah, it was a Bertram's All Goods. We're, we're so far from here. Is it the same Bertram? I don't know. Let's go in. Maybe he moved. It's been, we've been dead for half a year, for six to eight months. Who knows? So they go in the store and they're looking around and uh, a middle-aged gnome comes out from behind the counter and introduces himself as Bertram. Welcome to my store. <clears throat> they look at each other because the Bertram in the other place was a human. They're like, okay, well, clearly not the same Bertram. But they're like, we hate to bother you, sir. Your name's Bertram. We went into a Bertram's All Goods in Arduel. Are you affiliated with him? And he's like, no, that's kind of surprising. Another Bertram's All Goods. He goes, well, Bertram is a common name in many of the races. So um, I guess it's kind of not super surprising. I'm sure you'll eventually find a maybe a Bertram's Restaurant or a Bertram's Inn. But uh, the fact you found two All Goods is pretty funny. He goes, uh, I don't trade with Arduel, but if I ever get out that way, that'd be pretty interesting. I'll have to swing by and introduce myself. Interesting? Maybe. They get some supplies, like chalk and torches, flint and steel, some rope, of course. Always got to have some rope. Uh, get themselves some backpacks, you know, uh, water skins, all the basic stuff you'd need on a classic D&D adventure. Chalk being a big one. Hammer and pittance is another big one. I think I've mentioned this before, but in case I haven't, um, my players learned very early the usefulness of hammers and pittance. Hammer and pittance is like a long nail, almost like a railway spike. And it's really used for climbing. <clears throat> mountain climbing things, you hammer it in with a special hammer, hook chains or link ropes to it, and it allows you to help climb. Uh, but if you take a pitten and you put it behind on the ground behind a door, you hammer that into whatever's there, someone is going to have a hell of a hard time opening that door. At the same time, you can use that to hold the door open. It is very useful to have hammer and pittens, and we've found many a useful uh, use for them. So if you're a player... I highly recommend getting them. You'd be surprised how many awesome situations you can you can solve with a hammer and a really big nail. Um, <clears throat> they get all that stuff, and they wish the gnome Bertrand goodbye. Uh, and then they hand back to the temple with all of their supplies. They speak with uh, Brother Wendell, and he's like, yeah, I appreciate you know all of that. Uh, I'm glad you everything you got good. Rest well. I've already arranged to have plenty of food and drinks brought in here for you. Uh, so that way you'll be able to have all that stuff you need. You guys can head out in the morning. And that's what happens. They get another good rest. The next morning they get a good meal. They awaken to find already bags of foods and some wine skins and some water skins all packed. Plenty of stuff. Uh, it seems that uh, Brother Wendell has some serious pull in this town. So he's got Darsh very excited at the food. If you know, Darsh is, Darsh is our hungry boy. But uh, they set off. Now, the direction they were given is basically heading southwest towards the great mountain range that they saw in the distance. The mountain range at this point is northwest to southwest. Where they're at, they can just see it. It's kind of, you're looking west, you see it going off the distance in both ways. And the mountain range itself does not have a gradual slope. It goes up quick and sharp. Um, it would be very difficult climb. Um, and from at least where they are now, there's no passes you could see. It would be about impossible to go over this mountain range. You would you'd pretty much have to go around to the south or to the north to get through it. 
But right at it is where they're headed, the base of uh, an old ruins and such that uh, Wendell found years ago. And they travel. It takes, it's supposed to take four days to get there. On the second night, as they're preparing to <clears throat> enter into their first watch and rest, a figure walks out of the shadows. Now, it's not easy to sneak up on this group. When it happens, it's usually somebody pretty skilled. And immediately their weapons are drawn. And then set down in frustration as Zoltan walks in and sits next to the fire. Because Zoltan is... Uh, uh, annoying, <laughs> to say the least. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and they said, we hadn't expected to see you so soon, Gray Man. What brings you by? Do you have information on where the stones are? He says, yes, in a way. Of course, they roll their eyes. Like, of course, you can't ever give us a straight answer. And he sits down and he, sits down and he says, I, I was able to do a little bit more information and I, I have to come clean with a little bit of information that I kept from you previously, but I wasn't sure if I needed to. Um, at this point, I feel it's of the best. And they're like, well, great. Thanks for being up front right off the bat. He, he goes over again and kind of goes into detail of what happened. And he mentioned that the, if you weren't here last time, the god artifacts, if you will. After the big battle, uh, Kabork, which was the undead minotaur, had a crown with these gems in them were a certain type of gem. When the crown was broken, the gems fell through into the field below, and that explosion of magical energy pulled all of the weapons in that tight proximity into basically a, a pocket in another plane and locked them inside. But now that they're locked, the only way to get them out is to gather all nine of the gems, bring them back together. You're like, now, does he know how to get them back once you have the nine gems? He does not. He only knows you need the nine gems. But he gives, you a, gives the party a little bit more information and something very important. As he's sitting there, out of his gray robes, he pulls out a green stone. It's very, very smooth and flat on one side. And it's not perfectly round, it's more oval shape. He says, this is a Vistani stone. It is one of the nine. This is the life stone. It's through its magic and my own that I was able to bring you back from the beyond. And it took a while to figure out how to use it that way. But these stones are incredibly powerful. But they can be used in different ways. Each stone grants abilities, skills, or powers based on what they're merged with. Just holding the gem in your, in your hand isn't going to do you anything at all. But if you merge it into a weapon, and to merge it, you literally just have to will it to merge into that item. You pick up a hammer, you merge it into that. That hammer is now going to have abilities based on the gem that's attached to it. The only way to get the gem out is to destroy the item it's attached to. So don't put it on anything you really don't want to lose, because you're going to need all these gems back. But he hands the gem to Artemis. This is the life gem. It's a gem of healing, and through life, that's how I brought you back from the dead, is drawing upon its power. Artemis intelligently asks, what did you merge it to? He kind of ignores her and then looks, at, looks at her sideways and says, that's not important right now. He says, but the most important thing 
that you have to know about these stones. And this I cannot stress enough. These gems also can be merged with a person. You could merge them onto your own body, and doing so would give you great power and abilities beyond anything you could conceive. But these gems are sentient. And if you do that, there is a great chance that you will no longer be in control. The gem will take over you. He goes, and I know of no way to remove them from a person other than through death. If you merge this stone to you, the only way to get it off is to kill you. Don't do that. Do not merge this to yourself or anyone. Because A, you might be lost, or B, you, when you need the gem back, you're going to have to die. There isn't another way that I've been able to find in all of my research to remove them. But he gives Artemis the first stone. Her being a healing cleric, it makes sense to give her the life gem. I'm sure you all see the intelligence of that. But they now have one of the nine stones. And, let me see. There was the life gem. Have to have them all. I kept these notes here specifically. Excellent. So that's pretty much it. He says, at that point, he goes, that's all I found. I'm still looking for the locations of the others. I will return when I have more information. But at this point, in my weakened state, I feel the gem will be safer with you than it is with me. With that, he gets up and walks into the darkness. And when I say that, I mean, he, he literally fades into the darkness and then he's gone. And they all sit there silently for a minute until Darcy's is like, by the gods, I hate him. And they all chuckle a little bit. They continue their trek over the next few days until they reach the base of the mountains. Um, and again, interestingly enough, they're, they're really not getting high in elevation. And that's another thing. If you ever live near mountains, you know your elevation is going to go up as you're getting closer to the mountains. It's not. It's almost flat, like it was flat ground, and then the mountains were just shoved up through the earth. It would be the best description I could say of it. Because it, there's no elevation until you get to the base of the mountains, and then it's like rocks and mountains coming up that are all jagged and sharp. And of course, from the looks of it, they go a great distance in as well. It's not like a wall, like a thin wall of sharpness. It's definitely thick as well. It's just incredibly steep and incredibly sharp. So that's something they have to deal with, if they ever work to that. But they find the door they're looking for. There's some old ruins here that were clearly built in and around the base of the mountains. Uh, Brother Wendell said that the ruins themselves were messed up a little bit. They fell more apart after the merge, because a lot of things were shaken up. Uh, but the mountains and such, it's still all in the same place. Now, as you remember, I said that he was able to open up the first door. And they get there, and the door itself is metal, with all these weird shapes and twisty things, and just levers, and it's clearly some type of crazy puzzle. And Dandy would love to sit and, and spend some time looking at it, but... Um, they know they're in a bit of a time schedule here. So they, they push on through and they go inside. They light themselves some torches. And they make their way down a set of stairs. And the stairs are stone. They appear to be cut into the earth completely. Um, so they don't have any uh, issues, per se, going down them. So it's not like a, a thin stairs. It's a very wide set of stairs. You go in the door and it's almost like two or three darshes could walk side by side down these stairs. And there's railings down there. Um... Bear with me just a moment here. I want to read something specific. Okay. So a short distance down the stairs, they open into a large chamber. Um, they can see that there are strange railings and metal tracks encircling the walls. 
Like, I'm going to give an example. Imagine if you've ever been in one of those places where they have model trains going everywhere. Right? You know, the little ledge or little tracks of trains going all the way. Imagine something like that, but with no trains. Um, just railings, and they go up and down, down the stairs and around the rooms and along the walls. And they go up and down and all sorts of stuff. Nothing straight up. It's always on an angle. But um, it's built that way specifically. Okay. And then um, as they're going in, of course, Dandy is going first, checking the area for traps. Um, they don't really think there is anything because uh, Wendell said that he's been walking around in here for years trying to open up other doors, and that's what they're looking for. Um, as she's looking, Dandy gives the thumbs up. Everything's good. And they kind of go out and they start looking around the room. As they walk into the room... Give me one second. Yes. Um... They walk in, they, they see there are several doors dispersed around the room. Um, on each, uh, the doors themselves are 15 feet tall. This is a very big chamber. There's a very large set of 15 feet doors right in front. They appear to be gold-like. They're metal doors. Um, but they're much harder than gold. If you know anything about gold, gold's not that hard. You can scratch, you can nick it. These seem much harder, but they, they have the same visual effect as gold. No, they might be something different. On this door, carved into it and above it, you know, is a figure of a, of a is a great battle scene. Um, so imagine if there was a door, and then imagine like a quarter. You know, the head sticks out on a quarter. These stick out of the door. They're not carved in. They stand out of the door. And when I say stand, they're like literally an arm will come out of the door holding a sword, and there'll be another head coming up and it's being stabbed. It's a great battle. It's like a mass of bodies fighting. If that makes sense. If it doesn't, please let me know in chat, and I will be a little more descriptive if I can. But it's definitely three-dimensional arms and feet and legs and stuff coming out of the door. If you're familiar with Dungeons & Dragons, this is not a living wall. That's a scary monster. That's not what we're looking at here. Living walls are made of flesh, and they are scary. Now, um, let me see. It's the, 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 the statues, the carvings themselves, are so realistic, you would think it was literally just metal poured over someone. They're incredibly well detailed. And they tap on them, and they try to scratch it, but they don't move. They're very, very solid. On each side of the door is a large metal basin. Um, and it's just sitting there, and they look at it, and it's got liquid in it. Darsh leans in a little bit and smells, shrugs, sticks the torch in it, and immediately flames burst out. It's an oil of some kind. But not only that, the oil goes down these basins and starts spreading down those tracks. If you've ever seen uh, National Treasure, which oddly enough came out after I wrote this, um, but he lights the torch and the things go down the thing and everything lights up in the room. It's very much like that. It's clearly a, a lighting system. And it goes through, and now these tracks, and you can go under them, you can go over them depending on where they are. They, they go throughout the place, but they all just, the fire now is all throughout the room. So it gets a little warm in there, but not uncomfortably so. Uh, but definitely that. Searching the doors themselves, there's no doorknobs. There's no keyholes. There's nothing that would look like a way. There's obviously a center line that they can say, okay, this is where the door would open. 
I mean, you could probably grab on. And Darsh tries. Darsh is really strong. He's a mentor. And he tries pulling on the things to see if he can just force it open. And they didn't think it would work. But Darsh is like, you know, I'm way stronger than Wendell. What do you know? And so he tries, but he's not able to budget at all. It's, it's, it's severely stuck solid, if you will. So that being said, they're like, okay, we need to find a way through. Um, searching around the room itself, uh, looking to see if they can find anything else of importance. Um, they don't... Because this, this room has just that one big door. I apologize. There wasn't several. There was one big door. It was several basins of the flaming fire is what there were several of. And then the tracks going everywhere. They search the room. They start looking for hidden doors and such. Um, and the way I play Dungeons & Dragons, uh, anybody has a chance of finding a hidden door. Uh, if you roll six-sided dice and you roll a one, you have a chance of finding that door. And DM, of course, discretion, depending on if it's magical or something. But uh, certain races and classes can get bonuses to that, where you find it on a roll of one or two. But that's how we do finding secret doors in ours. Just because no matter how good a door is, is hidden, if you're looking for it, there's a chance you're going to find it. That's my logic. Um, so they, they search around them. They don't find any secret doors. They don't find any levers, any hidden keyholes, anything of that nature. They're looking all over the place. They come back to the main door, because it's really the only thing of any serious detail. Um, Dandy decides she's going to start climbing up it. It's 15 feet tall. Darsh is 7 or 8 feet. He lifts her up a good distance. But she starts climbing up. Maybe there's something near the top. Again, they know Wendell's been looking around, but there's no ladders in here. And he's always been in here by himself. He was very, very um, specific about he's never brought anyone in, because that was kind of the rules. He's breaking the rules, letting them, but they're a special situation. Who they are and all. She looks all over the place, and she's trying to go through, and she's looking at everything, and she reaches up, and she's grabbing onto a statue, and she comes up, and she's looking around, and then she stops, and she kind of looks at her hand, and, and she's thinking about it for a second. And then she looks over a little bit further, and she looks at some of the other statues, and she just looks at the statue's hand. And she starts climbing back down again. And she's like, okay, I didn't find anything special other than a hand. And they're like, well, Dandy, there's lots of hands here. She's like, yes, but this hand was empty. All the other hands that I can see have some type of weapons in them and such, at least that I'm seeing from standing in there. But this one had his hand back like he was throwing, either he had a, an axe or he was throwing a spear or something, but his hand literally looks like it should be holding something, but the hand is empty. Just happened to put my hand in his as I was climbing up. And they're like, okay, it's not much to go on, but it's something. So they start searching. Now, I wanted you to know that they spend a good day or two in here. They camp outside where it's cooler. Um, but the, the oil never goes out. Um, whether or not Wendell has ever lit it at some point, he never mentioned any of that. So we don't know if he did or not. But they spend the evening outside where they have a fire. They don't want to light a fire down in here, cooking and such. Um, but they spend a good day, day and a half searching the area. But now they're just looking for something that would fit. Something that would go into a hand. A pole, a weapon handle. They even tried putting their own weapons in there, just in case. But it doesn't have any effect. Um, let's see here. So you spring the door, and then they tried everything they had, even Darsh's biggest, his, his longsword, because Darsh has a big weapon. And of course, normally his weapon would be even bigger, because they're custom made for him, but he's using the biggest one the humans had. So it's a little small for him. Uh, but nothing, nothing fits inside that hand that they could find. So... As they're searching the door, they're like, okay, maybe there's something in the door that comes out and fits in. And they're searching, and as they do, they find that there are actually four 
empty hands in different locations in the wall. All the other people have some type of weapon or shield or something, but there are four arms or people where it looks like they have a hand that should be holding something. Okay. It's like, total, there's four. So it looks like we need four things. They try all their weapons again. Nothing works. So they need something else. So they decide to split up and just kind of go off on their own. And they're walking around and they look everywhere and Darsh is getting frustrated. Darsh is the most impatient of them. Darsh is made for battle. He's not dumb by any means. Very intelligent. But he also has a a bit of an anger issue in his youth. Um, And frustration comes to him very, very easily. And angrily, he kicks one of the basins. And the basin is solid. I mean, it's, it's built into the ground. It doesn't move. It hurts his foot some. But when he kicks it, there's a slight delay and then a clink. Now, Darsh is very strong, as I've stressed. Regular person kicking that thing probably wouldn't have had any effect, but he has a lot of anger in him, and he's got a lot of strength. And when he kicked it, it shook that. It, a little bit harder, he might even crack the stone. That clink made him think, there's something in this. Imagine a coin rattling in a bowl of water. He's trying to look in, but of course the thing's on fire. Fire coming in from either side. There's no way to snuff it out. In hindsight, he's like, man, I wish I'd have kicked this before we lit this whole place on fire. He calls over his friends and they start thinking about it. And they're like, well, is there any way to, that we can think of to, you know, snuff it out? They try blocking off the different sides, covering up with blankets or what things they have with them. The shield that Mercy carries, seeing if they snuff it out. But it doesn't really work on anything. It just keeps on burning. So they decide, foolishly, to see if they can stick their weapon in there. Maybe they can push it out or scoop out whatever's in the bottom of this basin because it's fire. You can't even see how deep it is. It looks like it's just a bowl about this deep, but it's still fire. Maybe they can find whatever there is, knock it out. A coin, a ring, a key of some kind. Clearly nothing big enough to fit in one of these hands, but maybe a clue to something that would. So they go ahead and Darsh takes his sword. He's like, I'm going to be quick because this thing's going to get hot. And he kind of puts into scrape along the bottom but is surprised to find that his blade goes much deeper than he thought. Everybody's surprised. He pulls it out quickly because it's hot. He wasn't expecting that. They get to talking about they realize that the column of it must be hollow. Darsh hauls off as strong as he can and kicks it again without trying to break it. And they hear again a clink inside. In the liquids, they're like, there's something down in there. So he puts his sword down again. He's trying to be quick because it's awfully big flames. And he, can, he feels like he's hitting something. Imagine if there was a stick sitting up into a, a deep water and you're hitting the top of it. You can kind of feel it lolling around like you're trying to knock it one place, if that makes sense to you. And Darsh it ain't, throws something and says, ah, screw it, and just shoves his hand into the fire and tries to grab it and pull it out quickly. And is completely shocked to find the fire doesn't hurt him. It's hot. You can feel heat and warmth coming off the fire when you are close to it. But the moment you touch the fire, there is no feeling of warmth at all. In fact, he doesn't even feel hot or cold in the liquid. Putting his hand in, it feels like there's almost nothing around him. And reaching in, he grabs and he pulls out a sword. Now, this sword is made of the same type of metal as that door. And it's one solid piece. It's not sharp on the edges. It's well made for for, you know, a statue sword, but it is not going to be something you would wield. 
Even though the statue, it's actually a little bit closer to what Darsh's size sword would look like. It's bigger than the average sword. They're very excited. We found something interesting. Brother Bart probably never shoved his hand in the fire. Only hothead Darsh would do that. And in that actual story, literally he decided to shove his hand in there and Artemis was ready to heal him the second he pulled his arm out because that was the only thing they could think of. Which was interesting because there were actually a couple other things in the room that might have helped them a little better, but they didn't, they didn't figure that out. So they go around to the four hands and they're searching and sure enough, they come across one of the hand statues and as soon as they put the handle of that sword in that hand, the fingers close around it. There's no sound. There's no squeak. Just as a, a regular flesh hand would wrap around it and then go solid again. They can't pull it out. It's, it's It now looks like it's literally one piece of that door again. Excited. They start searching the other basins. Sure enough, as they start going around the room searching through the basins, some of them are hot. They realize very quickly that some of them will burn them. And they do. But sure enough, they're able to find in several of the basins the additional weapons they needed. There was a sword, there was a uh, mace, there was a flail, and there was a spear. And after digging them all out and finding the correct hands to put them in, there's a loud cracking and grinding noise and the door splits and slowly creaks open. Just a little bit. Enough that they can then pull it open if they need to. So, this being point, like, okay... We've been here for a while, but let's keep on going. No one's hurt. We've got all our spells. Regular D&D talk. Let's continue the adventure. Dandy goes first. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Checking for traps. As she would. This place, clearly there's some magic involved with this. Those statuey hands weren't just moving around for fun. They're looking across very carefully, and they're traveling. And as they do, they come across uh, a room with... A tunnel on the left, a tunnel on the right, and a tunnel ahead of them. So it's a square room. Not as big as the last room, but there are three tunnels. You'll be happy to know that in these characters, they always go left first. It became a running gag of the adventure, but they, they always go left first if there's a left option. So they decide to go left. And as they are walking down, they travel a good ways. Not real long, but a little bit. Um, they, come, they start to feel a breeze, a windy breeze blowing towards them down the tunnel. Like, oh, well, maybe this leads outside. Could be a whole other entrance up in the, in the mountains there that no one ever found. And Dandy's like, I don't think so. We went down. We're lower than ground level at this point. I don't see how we could be going out of ground there. They continue on. And they walk into the room and as they walk in, they come across a large chamber. And just a few feet in is just a crack in the ground. Like someone has just taken the ground and ripped it apart. And got, that crevice goes all the way to the walls. The wind is actually coming up out of it, and it's blowing rather strong. At its center is an old-looking wooden rope bridge swinging back rather roughly in the wind. And the crevice itself is about 20 to 25 feet across, with this rope bridge just Shakety, shaking. I'm not crossing that, Artemis says, right out of the bat. Artemis has a great fear of heights. Remember I said all of our characters have some type of fear, and hers is a fear of heights. Looking at the bridge, Darsh goes, there's no way 
that thing is going to hold me. Darsh weighs over 350 pounds without gear on. There's no way that rickety bridge is going to hold him. That left Andy and Mercy. And although the condition of the bridge really was rough, it didn't look like um, it was sturdy enough that very likely both of them might be able to go across at the same time if they were careful. So they get to the wood, it's rickety, but it's not like rotting or anything of that. Um, so they're like, okay, very cool. I guess that's what we're going to do. Mercy takes off most of her armor. She was just wearing some light chain mail. Decides to leave her shield behind for the added weight. But she does keep her morning star and her dagger with her. And Dandy always has her little almost two-pack at this point that she's building. And they decide to go across. Let me see. They are all the way across without a problem. Surprisingly. It's a little rickety. And it's blowing, so they have to hold on carefully. But they make it across just fine. And... When they get there, they see that there's almost like a, a raised dais. Not like an altar, but along those lines, like a, like a raised area. And inside of it, or on top of it, I'm sorry, is a big bowl-looking shape. But it's more like longer and thin. They go up top and they look inside of it. And sure enough, sitting inside of it is a long, almost what looks like a scepter. Made of the same goldish material as the door they saw. Now, they had opened all the... All the hands, the door is open, but they're like, clearly this is important. We'll take this. And they grab it and turn around. Now, <laughs> as soon as they grab it, shapes start flying out of the crack in the ground. And eight to ten just massive bats come flying out. And these bats are not happy. And immediately come at Mercy and Dandy. Artemis, of course, and Darsh stuck on the other side. They can't get across to help them. Start yelling for them to try to come across. At least if they can get together, they can try to help. While this is going on, Darsh does have, uh, he has a few javelins. That's a thing that he carries. And he does whip a couple javelins, and he has a couple good hits, but these are flying giant bats around here. He's not getting those javelins back. And he ends up going through all four of the javelins he brought with him. He does manage to take out one of the bats, though, with a good hit. Mercy tells Dandy to try to rush across first. They both don't want to run at the same time. And Mercy being the more heroic of them, is like, Dandy, you go, you're small, get across there, you're faster. Maybe we can, I'll try to hold them off while you do. And uh, Dandy's like, you sure? And he's like, yes, go. So Dandy bolts across, and being as dexterous and agile as she is, she was the most likely to be able to get across without a problem. And she runs. And she gets across perfectly fine. Um, now, at this point, she has a couple little nicks on her, but Mercy, who took off most of her armor and shield, she's got little, she's got cuts and scratches and bite marks all over her. These things are just flocking at her more than anything else, because she's the one who has that golden scepter. Because it was a little bit heavy, Dandy wasn't carrying it. She's the one that took it. So, she's like, Dandy's like, I'm across, come on. So, Mercy tries to go that direction, but the bats are literally just buffeting at her, and she can't. And in one hand, she's got her morning star and she's failing. And then she takes that scepter and she's swinging it the other way. And as she does, she realizes the bats back off really quickly and then come in at her again. And every time she swings the thing in their directions, they, it's like they don't want to touch it. And so she starts trying to use it much like you would a torch. Because Danny had a torch, obviously. It's dark in here. She's carrying a torch. But same type of situation. And she's trying to use it to, to ward them off 
as she's trying to get across the bridge. Now, of course, as you all knew was going to happen, she's almost across when the bridge breaks. The bats literally are banging against it while trying to get her. Uh, she manages to grab on, and she's kind of holding on to the rope. Uh, Darsh grabbing that into the bridge with his strength. I mean, he could just lift up Mercy one-handed anyway. He just starts pulling it up. The bats are now starting to buffet at him. Well, Dandy's wailing at them, and then Artemis is using some of her spells, non-healing spells, is actually repelling some of the bats, and that's what really gives Darsh the time he needs to pull Mercy up. But he manages to get her out. She's just kind of hanging on to the thing, to the to the to what's left of the rope bridge, not letting go of the, the scepter or... Her weapons, of course. She didn't want to be unarmed. And they managed to get up okay. Once they're up on the other side, they rush back out of the chamber. The bats don't seem to follow them out. Once they leave back down that hallway, the bats stop chasing them. Now, some of this is going to be a little bit more in detail in combat like that. I do have those kind of things. I would like to ask, if you prefer the story with less of the combat, if we'd rather me just say there was a bunch of giant bats and they fought them and they won, let me know. I want to make this as entertaining as I can for you, but if that's too much detail, please let me know. I'm going to take yet another drink. All right. As we get back to that main chamber, there were two more doors. There's one that's going forward, one that's going to the right. They're like, we always go to the left. We already did the left. We're going to go round robin. We're going to go in the front one this time. And as they're traveling down that tunnel... They come to yet another golden door. Much like the first one they came to. And this golden door is smaller, but it has carvings on it as well. But the carvings aren't a multitude of different figures. One of them appears to be some type of, I guess you could say, high priest or paladin or templar of some kind. He looks definitely like he has some type of armor on, but the, the carvings around him make it look like he has an aura of light. And obviously, he has a hand up before him like this. On the other side shows some type of warrior. Now, again, one is facing towards the center crack, the other one is facing, so they're facing each other on the door, the two doors, if you will. The other one is a very, very large and burly-looking man, uh, clearly with armor. And I'm going to say, if you have any, we're talking World of Warcraft armor, giant shoulders, <laughs> big, bulky armor that's clearly not usable by anybody in an actual combat. And it, and it's his hand, he's holding something as well, but his hand is empty, just like the other one's hand is empty. It's like their hands are just across from each other with the line of the door in the center. Looking at each other, they're like, well, obviously we have one of the two. They take the scepter and they place it into the hand of the priestly-looking guy on the left. Sure enough, the hand clasps around it and just holds it. They're like, well, we need the other one. I guess that's up that other tunnel. They go back that way. Um, now, as they travel up that one, and they are going into that tunnel. This one takes a little bit longer to travel. Okay, she wakes her way around and, and it starts being kind of twisting turn. They travel for a good hour in this one. The other one they traveled four or five minutes. This one goes much, much, much further. And as they reach the end of this tunnel, they come into yet another chamber. Excuse me. And in this chamber, it is rounded, and there just appear to be stalactites and stalagmites. It looks like a, a big underground cave like or cavern like you would normally find. Um, nothing special about it. It doesn't look man-made. looks just like a natural cavern. Well, the part, the, they start to worry a little bit. They're like, well, this doesn't look like anything else we've been in so far. What if something happened during the merge and this is not what was supposed to be here? 
we can't find the other thing we need, how we can get by that door? We don't have to have the power to bust through something that big. Artemis is just doesn't have those kind of spells. Z you know, Zarin might have back in the day, but you know, you don't have him anymore. It's like, well, let's search the room. Maybe on the other side of it, the merge ended. I mean, and we can go whatever. And they start making their way through the room, and they're going carefully. They're not fools. Dandy's looking for traps. Darsh is right behind her looking. Mercy's always in the back, of course. Make sure that Artemis doesn't get attacked behind. Darsh and Mercy try to keep Artemis in the middle. And in some situations, they'll stick Dandy in there, too. But in this situation, it's best for Dandy to go first because she's looking to make sure there's no booby traps or anything. And it's kind of a double-edged sword because Dandy doesn't find any traps. But something gets them anyways. As they're traveling through there, Artemis yells out in pain and shock. Darsh and Dandy spin around real quick, and Mercy's looking at her, because Mercy didn't see anything. And Artemis falls to the ground. Mercy goes to reach for her, and she starts sliding across the floor. Darsh quickly reaches out, rushes forward and grabs her, but he feels attention, and they can see that there's something wrapped around her leg. Some type of tentacle tendril thing. Mercy, dropping her Morningstar, pulls out her sword. She has a sword, too, but she prefers the Morningstar comes at it and starts trying to hack at it. The thing is moving. It's clearly trying to pull Artemis. And it's very thick, almost like that big around. For those of you audio listening, we're talking maybe four or five inches diameter. And it's tightly wrapped around her leg in a couple spins. And it's sticky and slimy kind of looking. And even though she's hacking at it, it's definitely cutting into it. But it's, it's, it's not cutting well. Again, like trying to chop onto a big, thick rope. It's just splintering a little bit. And, and they hear a loud groan come from the direction in the darkness that it was coming from when they start hacking at it. And another one comes flying out at Mercy, who manages to throw herself backwards to avoid getting snatched by it. Darsh is just holding on to Artemis as hard as he can, but at this point, he starts feeling himself being pulled forward. He's stuck in a spot. Do I lock myself in place and make sure she doesn't go? But at that point, the thing could rip her leg off. I mean, it's pulling very, very hard. And he doesn't want her to be in pain. If you ever heard of the rock, that kind of situation, to pop her arms and legs out. So he very slowly is trying to adjust his grip to get his hands underneath her arms. So like, you know, under her shoulders, if you will, holding her that way. So he can get a good grip on her, but he's not just yanking on her arms and leg sockets. And he's still trying to hold her, but allowing a little bit of give while Dandy and Mercy keep hacking at that thing. Mercy, at this point, is doing her best to whack the other one that's trying to come at them every so often, because it'll go back into the darkness and then come back out real quick again. Dandy's very agile, so she's smacking it to the left, knocking it out of the way, even though she, she keeps getting hit with it. Artemis is calling out, and when Dandy gets hit with it, she feel, and her shoulder hits her one time, she feels a bit of a burn there, like it hurts just whatever here, that slime itself. Mercy's having the same problem. She's hacking this thing. Some type of fluid is spitting out, and it burns like an acid. Dandy whips her torch towards the direction that the tendrils are coming from. Because it's dark in there. It's a big room. And they see that one of the... And I apologize. I never remember which one is the one on the ground. Stalagtite or stalagmite. Whichever one's coming out of the ground. The thing, it looks just like a... When, I'm going to say it's a stalagmite. I'm probably wrong. It's the stalagmite coming out from the ground. Instead, it looks just like a rock one like the others, although it's a bit larger. Except in one opening, it's just a giant mouth with rock sharp, just sharp teeth in it. 
There's one eye above the mouth, and it has literally one of these tendrils on each side. And one of them is wrapped around Artemis, and the other one, like an arm, just keeps whipping forward trying to get the other ones, and it's trying to pull Artemis into that mouth. Now Darsh is more concerned, because he's like, well, now I can't let her get pulled into that. But at the same time, it's going to hurt her if I hang under her. Uh, Neon says, you're right, the stalagmite is from the floor. Excellent! Thank you very much. <laughs> Not my strongest point. For years I've been talking about stalagmites, stalactites, and I'll look it up. Sure enough, the next time I have to talk about it, I'll have forgotten again. But yes, this stalagmite is trying to pull her in. Now, seeing the source of it, Mercy gives up on trying to cut the thing, and instead she just charges right at it. Now, this is large. It's bigger than Darsh. It's probably a good 10 feet tall. And it's very thick at the base coming up to a point. You know, it's, it's, some of the other ones are thinner, but this is very thick at the base. Almost like, uh, imagine the McDonald's Grimace, but without, without feet. Just the Grimace part coming out of the ground. Except rock-like, not purple. As it's being pulled in, you know, she just goes in and she starts hitting at it. And again, as she's hitting at it, it's bouncing off of it like she's hitting stone with, a, with, with her sword. Because she dropped her Morningstar, so she's got her sword. So she's just chipping against it. She wishes she had her Morningstar. Blunt weapon against rock, a little bit more effective. Dandy, doing the same thing, comes running up. And she starts trying to poke at it. But again, she's just using a stick, poking against stone. It's not doing any good. While at the same time, they're trying to defend against this other tendril that's incredibly long. Like 15 to 20 feet, it would appear. But it seems to pull back up into it. So it's not always just like laying on the ground. It pulls in and then it whips back out again. Then it pulls in and whips back out again. And it's flinging at him, trying to grab him. And Dandy's doing that. And not knowing what else to do, it's just chipping off. Mercy decides to take it and just jumps up high and stabs at the eye. This had a result. Stabbing at the eye, and it cuts into the eye, a, a, like a greenish ichor starts pouring out of the eye. The same that was coming around the, out of the tendril. And the thing just starts to screech. And when I say screech, like a screech that actually is hurting their ears. And Darsh goes flying backwards as he realizes that Artemis has been released. He goes flying backwards and Artemis is on top of him. And he smacks his head down and he's sore. You know. But Artemis lands on him, so, you know, immediately she's trying to stumble off of him because she, you know, doesn't want to be rude. She's a very proper lady. But she stumbles off of him and tries to get behind a couple more of the rocks to make sure the thing doesn't come out and grab her again. And even though she's in really bad pain because the skin on her leg where that was rabbit was literally being eaten away into the muscle, she immediately starts casting healing spells on her leg to stop the pain. The most It takes a couple tries because in you know, trying to cast a spell, concentration, the first time she tried it failed. But she managed to get there and she's able to heal it up enough where it's not quite as painful, but she doesn't have time to do a full heal on it. Darsh... Once Artemis is behind a rock, he just gets up and runs, and he goes right in there, and he just starts stabbing at the thing as with his sword. And the tendrils are whipping at him, and he doesn't even care. You know, he's just letting him hit. And he's the tallest, so he's having an easier time. He's just stabbing at the thing's eye over and over again. And the thing doesn't seem to be able to move. Its body's not trying to get away. And the tendril comes out to wrap and starts to try to wrap around his neck, and he just grabs it. It's burning into his hand, but with the other hand, he's literally just stabbing at the eye. And then finally, it just seems to go in way deeper than normal, and there's a pop, and the eye just literally blows. And both he and Mercy and Dandy all get it on him, and it burns. And the thing, at that point, literally starts to shrink down into, like it's sinking into the ground a bit. Tendrils come off him, and it, it's pulling itself down. Not all the way. It's still somewhat above ground, but it's like shrinking into itself. 
this point, they're like, I don't know what else we can do to hurt it. Its eye is shrunk up. They can't see the eye anymore. The eye and the, the, the mouth, what was left of the eye, are now under rock, even though part of it's sticking up. The tendrils are gone. They rush back to check on Artemis. They didn't have time. They saw her healing. They got to check on her. She's doing okay. She throws a couple heels on each of them to the, on, on, to stop the acid from eating at them. Uh, Darsh, who'd taken the worst of it there at the end, because his hand and around his arm where he was just holding onto one tendril was just eating into the hair there. But she manages to heal it, so it's okay. And they try to get away from it. They're like, well, we, what do we do? Do we go back or do we continue on? And they're like, well, there could be more in here. Now they have a bigger concern. So Dandy says, I'm going to go. You guys wait here. And they're like, that's not safe. She's like, if anybody can dodge these things, it's me. You guys stay here. Protect Artemis. I'm going to see what I can find. And Dandy very, very quickly starts moving, you know, using the, the stalagmites as cover. Starts shooting around the room, just jumping behind one or the other. And as she gets up to it. She, she's poking them with her, with her hoopacky stick to see if it moves or has any attention. She's being careful. When she realizes it's not alive, she puts her back up against it, makes sure there's no tendrils coming in the movie. And luckily, she doesn't get attacked again. But on the other side of that cavern, sure enough, they find an, she finds another altar, much like they saw in that first room. Or the, the, the one with the bats. And inside of that altar is a big golden hammer, like war hammer. It's a struggle for her. She manages to lift it up off of the altar. And you clunk, hits the ground. And they hear, you okay? She's like, I'm all right. She starts dragging it back as quickly as she can, trying to be careful, being agile, being sneaky dandy. But she starts dragging it back, and eventually she goes, Darsh! Darsh comes running over thinking she's in trouble, and she's like, my arms are killing me! He's like, give me that. He picks it up. Are you okay, though? She's like, yeah, I'm okay. He's like, come on. Tuffles her hair and they muck off. They get back to Artemis and Mercy, and they're like, let's get the hell out of this cave. And they get out of there. They still hear the odd noises coming from the direction of the thing that was attacking them. But they managed to leave without any other further issues. Return back to that main chamber. Takes them a while to get back again. They decide before they're going to put this in the the door and open it up, they're going to need to rest for a while. A lot of stuff's been going on now. What was the thing? The thing is a version of a roper. Um, Roper is a classic Dungeons and Dragons uh, monster, which resembles that. Um, Depending on the design of it in which mode. Sometimes they have one eye, sometimes they have two. Sometimes themselves, they're, they're not all rock. Sometimes they're more of a, a mushy type thing. Uh, but the tendrils and the fact that they blend in and can be very commonly found there, um, they're one of two what I like to call my rock monsters I like to use. That's one. The other one's called a piercer. A piercer is a stalactite, except it just falls. And it's very sharp, like razor sharp. And if it lands on you and kills you, then it just starts to eat you. And eventually on the bottom of it, it's like tendrils. They climb up the wall and get up there and they just sit up there waiting for something to walk underneath of them again. So you get in a room of those and it's like, you know, trying to run through a room dodging things that are falling. I think we actually have that sometime in the future, if I remember correctly. But it was called a roper. Literally, R-O-P-E-R, because it has a rope arm. But they, uh, they managed to get back out. They decide to rest. They spend the night in this chamber. They have a resting here, making sure what they're going to do, make sure they're okay. Plus, they use a lot of their spells of healing there. Artemis uses the rest of what she has to make sure everybody's tip-top before they go to crash out for the night. But as of the next day, they're up, they're ready to continue with their adventure. This is very common in Dungeons & Dragons. We're in the middle of a dungeon. You have to take a nap, because if you don't, you will not survive. But in a normal story, it'd be hard to just take a nap in the middle of a dungeon. But you kind of have to do that. 
So the next day, up, feeling better about the situation, mostly healed, a little bit achy from the from the earlier day. They just because Artemis doesn't use all of her healing spells. She always keeps a couple in case something attacks in the middle of the night and somebody gets hurt worse. She's very smart about that. If they were, you know, out traveling where it was safe or staying in town, it'd be different. But in a dungeon, you're going to keep a couple extra in case they get attacked in the middle of the night. Because I like to do that. But they go ahead the next day, gather up their things, make their way over to the uh, to that door again, and they place the hammer in the warrior's side. And sure enough, the door is open. Very slowly. But all on their own. All the way to an open position. They decide to walk in, and then they very quickly decide to stop. These are not untrained professional heroes. They have fought many a monster in their days, and they are quite familiar with what zombies are. It does not take them long to realize the mass of bodies in the next room are undead. And the second that door opened and they started walking in, they noticed that they were there. The undead noticed them. And slowly they turn and begin to shamble towards our heroes. I'm not going to go into super great detail here, except for one particularly important thing. They are losing. They try to backtrack. And these are slow zombies. Not fast zombies. I don't do fast zombies. They're classic slow zombies, but there's a large amount of them. They back into the room. They're like, okay, where do we go? Do we go back to the room with the cavern? Don't want to do that. Bats, there's a crevice there. We're blocked in. Definitely don't want to go back where the rock monster is. Do we leave all the way out and bring the zombies out? And then they're stuck They're stuck with a very big situation. A, there's a bunch of zombies here they have to get. And from the looks of it, there's about 20 to 22 of them. Somewhere between 20 and 25. But they also, being good people, do not want the zombies out of the dungeon. Well, that town's only a certain distance away. The zombies will eventually find the living. They do not want to unleash this upon the countryside and the innocent folks that they've met around this area. So as good heroes do, they try to take out the zombies. During this combat, through this battle situation, our heroes have a string of bad luck. Dandy's almost ready hoop pack breaks in the middle of combat. And not only does it break, it breaks on Darsh. Like, she's literally trying to hit, and literally hits him instead. Causing him to trip and fall, the zombies start to swarm over him. He's pulling him off, but he's getting bit. This isn't like zombies, you get bit, you become a zombie thing. It doesn't work like that in Dungeons and Dragons. But they're biting and clawing at him and, and hurting him. And Artemis, luckily being a cleric, is using her ability to turn undead. To okay. She's not high enough for the blow up or nothing, but she's definitely, they're trying to stay away from her. But they, Mercy rushes in to try to help pull Darsh out of these throngs of bodies and sure enough she ends up tripping and then they're both on the ground covered in zombies. Kid you not, this is how it happened. Dandy at this point has just got her dagger out and she's trying to dodge zombies and she try to pull them, help get them off Darsh and them if she can, but not being super successful with it. And it literally looks like the party may be overrun by these zombies. I mentioned something previously uh, in a previous adventure that in my gate world of D&D every character has an ability once basically per level to pray to their god and ask their god to directly intervene 
in the events that they find themselves within. It's basically rolling for divine intervention. A character has a 1% chance times their level of being answered. So Dandy, hypothetical level 5, has a 5% chance. She may only make an attempt one time, one roll, and then she cannot try again until she's increased in level. Where she would then have 6% chance. So not only do you only have one chance, you only have one chance to even try, pass or fail. Now the upside to that, clerics and paladins get a 2% chance. And in the middle of her prayers, Artemis, calling out to her god, Tavian, god of healing, asking for assistance, feels her god's holy energy basically envelop her. Yeah, does not turn her into superwoman. None of that kind of craziness. Because of the way that the merged world works, the gods cannot come to the world. They're locked out. They can send their blessings and their magic through, but even they're limited by this force, this field that's keeping them from being able to access this new world. So she doesn't get quite what you'd normally get. But what she does get is a quick image in her mind of her god. And if you remember, the healing waters is the thing of Tavian. her, Her symbol is like two drops of water. Like one, one drop with another one underneath it. That's her holy symbol. And, But in that image, she doesn't see a blue drop. She sees a green drop. And the drop changes shape to be, end up being an oval shape. And in that moment, what she sees is the Vistani stone. And it's like basically getting a hint from God. You can't directly intervene or give her billies like you normally would. But he is able to give a suggestion. Quickly, she takes out the gem out of her pocket. The only thing she has in her hand is her quarterstaff, and she merges it to that staff. Well, hello there, one of my kitties. Patches, can we? Oh, no. Oh, she's skittish. Well, she comes back. I'll try to grab her and show you one of my new kitties. First time one of them's been down here in the last couple hours. Um, But immediately, she can feel an aura coming off of off of the staff. She can sense the magic that's in it, and it's strong. And so she, rushing forward, starts whacking at zombies. And as she hits a zombie, the zombie literally, it doesn't take damage, it dies. It ceases to be animated. That's important. She's hitting it, and it just ceases. And because they're so old, they've been locked in. The bodies start to crumble and fade. Hello, buddy. Another kitty is visiting. Well, he was. We're getting closer. Um, and again, what is it? You're squeaking at. They've only meowed like two times since we've had them. I apologize for the inter- for kitty interruption, but they are new, and I'm having to keep an eye on them and make sure they're okay. Um, well, somebody just ran up the stairs. But she... She, at that point, sees the effect of it and smacking on the ground, she casts her her own spell again. The, the turning undead thing that clerics can do. And this time, it's just she can feel, you can visually see light coming off her, and like a wave it rolls across the zombies and they just fall to dust. Rushing to her friends, 
helping him up. Darsh and Mercy are kind of beat up. Danny's got some nicks on her too, but she's pretty quick. And she feels really bad about knocking Darsh over. He brings that up a lot. But she does what she can. She She's healing her friends. And instinctively, she takes the staff and touches each one of them. And they feel somewhat refreshed. The staff has certain abilities. Again, what you attach it to has an effect. And attaching it to her staff with what she does, it basically, not only does it repel undead, has that type of feature, it also has an active healing. So it's like a staff of curing. Touching it once per day can, it has like, I think I want to say it was a 1d12 plus the level of the wielder. So if she was level 5 or 6 at the time, it'd be 1d12 plus 5 or 1d plus 6. And she can touch a person each day, and it's like a free mini healing spell on that person. But it only works on a person once. When I say a day, I say a 24-hour cycle. If I heal Darsh right now, it won't work again until 24 hours have gone by. But it doesn't use any of her spells to do that. So it becomes a very regular piece of wood, becomes an incredibly strong staff at this point. And the only way to get the stone out is to break it. And that's not easy, because these things become much more durable once they merge with a Vistani. Any of the Vistani stones merging with them, that now that's, that thing is like steel strength. Darsh could probably break it, but it wouldn't be easy. All the zombies are gone. Everybody's healed up a little bit, at least, from this new staff. They ask her, what the hell just happened? She says, um, this, I did this. And they're like, oh, use the stone thing. Well, now we have an idea of kind of how those things work. Awful glad you didn't stick it on you in a moment of crisis. Glad you decided to stick it on the staff. It's got some uses. That's pretty handy. It's also, at this point, the only magical item they've got other than a couple of potions of healing, which at this point they did dip into that Brother Wendell gave them. But they go ahead and they get you know cured up as much as they possibly can because they want to get the heck out of here. And they move forward. There's just one door on the other side of this room. And it's another gold door. No figures on this one. Just two big round door knocker looking door things on it. Handles. Darcy's like, this I can do. Doors I can open. And they walk up carefully. Dandy searches it to make sure it's not booby-trapped. Gives them the A-OK. Artemis does a little bit of magic spells to make sure it's not magically booby-trapped. Also gives them the A-OK. Darcy says, now I'm going to open the door. And he does. And... Opening up the door, they find themselves immediately inside of a tomb. It is a round room. It's not overly large. Maybe about 15 feet across. And in the center of it is a what you would almost say is a sarcophagus. But instead, carved on the front of it is clearly some type of knight holding you know, the classic two-handed sword going down to his feet. It's carved. It's not a body. It's a carving on the top half of this sarcophagus-looking thing. And there are symbols all over the walls. As soon as they step inside, hairs on their arms and legs start standing up and stuff. Or for Darsh, hairs everywhere start standing up on end. They can feel the amount of magic in this room. It's like electricity. It's not hurting them, but there's an overwhelmingly large amount of magic in this room. Darsh is like, I don't like this. I'm not a fan of being tingly. No offense, Artemis. None taken. I want to get out of here. 
this is the last room. The box is in here somewhere. Probably in there, but let's look first. They look around the room. They don't find anything else. Darsh begins to move the top off of the sarcophagus. It's even heavy for him. It's very thick. But he's able to slide it off the top. Careful not to break it. He's respectful. He spins it kind of sideways so at least they can see inside. And inside is a box. It is a nice box. Gold, got some jewels on it. Um, black and white gems, onyx, pearls, it looks like. Golden ringed, but the box itself appears black, almost like a, an, a, a, an onyx block. Okay? There's a lid, and then holding the lid to the bottom is just the tiniest little gold lock. Dandy could probably snap the lock off from the looks of it. Darsh is like, I'm assuming this is the box. Artemis comes over, says, okay, I'm going to try one more time. Tries to cast and detect magic on the box and is almost immediately blinded by the amount of magic that's in this room. And then the grinding sound starts. And the walls seem to somewhat spin and all of a sudden there's all these little alcoves. And standing there are actual knights, it looks like, of the same style that was carved into that. Although these look like very real. Especially when they step forward. Immediately everybody draws their weapons. There are nine of them. And they are standing there holding their swords down and they walk and then they stomp. The party back to back. I didn't even touch the box yet. They got their weapons out. They're like, I'm not sure how well your new stick is going to work against these. They can't be alive because this has been a long time they've been in here. But they don't see bodies. They just see the knights and the armor and such, the gold metal gloves. So it's almost like walking plate mail, if you will. Is there something inside? They can't see, but they do see a glowing from the visors of where the eyes would be. Not glowing eyes, but just a glowing light itself from within inside. The one in the center of the nine, the one that would have been furthest away from the door, a little bit larger than the others, a little bit more artistry in the armor, takes an extra step forward. And it speaks, but in a language they don't understand. I'm a jerk like that. And it, they just stand there, not sure what's happening. Then it points at the box. Artemis is like, yes, we've come for the box. Will it hurt us if we take it? And the thing shakes his head, no. If we take it out of here, are you going to hurt us? And again, it shakes his head, no. Dandy says, or I'm sorry, Mercy says, are you here to protect it? And it nods its head. And are you to keep people away from it? And it shakes its head, no. They ask a couple other questions that it doesn't answer, because it's not a question that was pertinent at the time. But the questions they, I'm asking are the ones out of those group that they did get answers to. And then Mercy says, if we take this, is there a chance it's going to bring danger to out there? And the thing nods its head. And I said, if we leave it here, 
will it be safer? And it shakes its head no. Mercy's like, well, that, I just, oh, well, I don't know what you want from us then. Artemis says, okay, let's, let's try to take the box and see what happens. Mercy does. She reaches in, picks up the box. Nothing happens. She takes a step towards the door and all the knights just basically back up a step, no longer blocking their way. Now, Darsh has his weapons out. Dandy's got her dagger because her new hoop hack in, in building was busted. Backs out. They carefully make their way out the door slowly, waiting to see if these things attack them. But they don't move any further. They make their way back out into the room where all the zombies were. And the doors close again. Well, that was weird, says Dandy. I don't know why they would do all this trouble if they're just going to let us take the box. Artemis goes, I also got a very different feeling from the magic that we saw in there versus all the undead and stuff out here. It was very different feeling to it. Almost like two different groups of people were involved in that. Whatever made that room was not the same people who made all the stuff to get into that room. The group agrees. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense based on what they felt. That It definitely felt out here was much more base and violent and such, but in there was actually relatively peaceful, although it gave them the heebie-jeebies. They decide, let's get out of here before things get worse. Who knows what else is still in here? And they make their way out of the dungeon. And it takes them a bit to travel out, but they are successful. And they get out with this box. Now, they wrap it up. They were careful not to open it. They were told not to open it. So they wrap it up in a, one of the blankets. And Darsh puts it in his backpack. Again, because if anybody has to defend it, Darsh is probably the best. And they proceed to make their way back to Brother Boom. And they do. It takes them a couple days to get back. But there's no real events on the way. They didn't find any type of treasure in there at all. Nothing cool, other than the box itself. There was no loot. It was purely designed for just that box. They talk about the box quite often. The box doesn't seem to have any designs on it, other than the gems and the black and the gold, but there's no like pictures or writing that they could find. Artemis does try to cast a detect magic on it again, but the spell itself seems to be, almost be reflected. When she's trying, she's not getting a response. She's only sensing the magic on herself which is very odd and something the spell should not do. So, after a couple of days, they make it back to town. They go into the temple, and he is blown away by the fact that they were successful. Shocked, even. He's like, 20 years! And he's sitting there looking at the box on his kitchen table. He's like, 20 years plus I've been going after this thing. I'm not going to say I'm not a little jealous. You guys knocked it out in a week and a half. He's like, but I mean, this was basically my life quest. This is what I've been working on. This is, even though I've lived a happy life in here, you know, every month for at least a week, I trudge out there and try to find my way in. When I'm here, I'm researching. I'm sending out missives to libraries. I'm trying to find out what's going on, what the box is, why I'm here. Wondering, oddly enough how this this whole thing happened to fall on his lap. And, and they ask him. They're like, okay, well, I mean, you must have been chosen, right? They came to you and it's like, hey, we have a quest for you. And he's like, kind of. Kind of. I actually was working in the library and I came across 
the tale of this. And doing some research, came across where it was supposed to be. So I brought it to my superiors. And I'm like, hey, I found this book and I found these scrolls. And I was able to find out where this thing is. And I know that for, for, they had a very strange reaction. They weren't very happy with me. Um, but a couple of days later, they came to me and said, we're giving you this quest. Go to there and find it. Which back then, I mean, it, it took me a year to get here. I was from much, much further away. I was not from Paxiwal originally. Uh, but I was from much, much further away. Now, I've spoken with the priests of Paxiwal through missives and through, I went there once. I did let them know that I was doing this and they were like, okay, well, keep up the good work. They really weren't involved. They're the closest priests I have. So, you know, they're still the church. But this is my goal. And he goes, now it's done. He goes, it's really a weight off my shoulders. Because at this point, he goes, I, I, I definitely want to, let's continue with what we did. If you'll take it to the temple, I'm done. I'm free of this. I feel that I'm now free to just continue to preach the gospel to this town and look after these townsfolks have taken me in. Uh, these are great people. And I'm very, very happy and excited to be able to do that. And they're like, okay. So once again, they get some basic uh, supplies. They spend a day there chilling with the, with the priest, um, healing up their leftover wounds and such. And they feel pretty good about it. And after a day or two of being there, they decide to head on into Paxiwal. Now, Paxiwal is still a couple weeks travel. So they were able to get some horses. They were not able to get a horse big enough for Darsh. Darsh needs a very special horse. You can't just ride on your regular pony. He will hurt it. Um, so what they did get was a wagon. And he and Dandy are basically sitting on the wagon being pulled by horses. And Mercy and Artemis have a horse. So they were able to get that set up. And it's going to be a little bit easier to travel and, and so on and so forth. Which they do. And they leave and they start making their way to Paxwall. And there's a couple small towns they come across on the way, stayed in in here and there, chat up people, talk to. Uh, Neon says Darsh is a horse, though, at least sort of. He's the, he's, he both weighs one. He is, he is a big dude, definitely. He is a big guy. I look forward to having some more art to show you of those here in the future. Uh, I've got some cool pictures to show you of some things, of fan art and stuff that we had done, but a lot of that gives away future stories, so I have to wait on some of that to show you those. But um, they make their way. And, and they travel for a week or two, like I said. And they know that they're about a week out of Paxiwal from, from the last town that they kind of stop at. There's not really any towns between here and there. Some small communities, farming communities, but they're now within what's considered the lands of Paxiwal. So now they're actually starting to see, you know, people on horses, you know, what we call cops. Basically, I'm, I'm forgetting the world the word I'm thinking here. Um, not cops. What's the word? Why am I drawing a blank on this? You know, the town's... Oh God. Anyways. The people that enforce the law. So, they're making their way there, and they, they meet some of them. They can talk. Hi, we're cleric of uh, healing. Tavian. That's Artemis. Paladin guards, kind of. Um, it's, it's, it's not that. It's you know, what you call the local police force. I'm forgetting the name of it. Captain of the guards would be a thing, but uh, it's like, you know... I can't think of it, but I'll, I'll, the word will hit me as soon as I'm done this, this thing. But it's a basically it's a, the group of official knights or police of the place. Um, I'll think of it later. But they're making in. They talk to them. Of course, they're like, "Oh, excellent, a cleric. Yes, please come to the tower. Your friends, very cool. And the, that one is very scary. But if they're protecting you and they work for you, then that totally makes sense. And they really play it off that way. A lot of times, it's like, "Yes, I've hired these folks to protect me. They work for me, and that's how they get to carry go into places that normally only Artemis would get to go." And they're traveling. Now, 
they are, they spend the night at an inn, like normal, uh, a small one on the side of the road. They crash there, and the next day is kind of rainy. They, uh, they know they're just a few days out of Paxwell. And they go ahead and they get their wagon hitched up in the rain because it was just sitting outside. There was no real barn. You know, they're, they're soaking wet and they got their supplies in the back. And Darsh just hates hates being wet. The hair gets in his eyes and he's just sopping wet. They got some little hoods or blankets over there to try to come down. But it's really coming down. Not like thunder and lightning, but just a very heavy rain. They get their horse out and they're like, well, we don't want to stay. We want to keep going. Let's see. We're only a couple days away. We're trying to make good time here. And they get to bumbling. And they're heading that way. And they're traveling for a couple hours. And at this point, they're traveling through what appear to be just fields, wheat and corn, things that are being grown. They see buildings off in the distance, off the road. The road at this point is very well kept. Clearly, at this, Paxwell has been building the roads out further and further to be able to bring goods in and out at a faster and more reliable pace. Um, but they're, on very, they're making good, even though it's very rainy and muddy, it's a stone road, so they're not having any problem traveling. And as they're going through the rains and they're coming through the, you know, the, the through fields, there's some trees on the side occasionally. It's uh, there's not a lot of trees. Most of them cleared out for farmland, but there's little patches of trees occasionally. And as they're going through a group of trees, suddenly they're attacked. Brigands decided to try to rob them. Probably not the best choice they've ever made. But seeing a wagon of goods. They've decided to try to rob Darshan friends. It actually does catch them by surprise. In the rain, they're really, at this point, they're within the, the guard, the area of the police force. They're like, okay, they, they didn't think they'd be attacked here, but they were. And norm, in itself, it's not that bad a problem. There's only about eight to ten of them, which, you know, as trained as Darsh and Mercy are, even with Dandy, could normally take them out pretty good. The problem is, is they do have several archers with them. And Darsh very quickly takes a, uh, I was going to say arrow to the knee just to be funny, but I'm gonna, he takes an arrow to one of his arms and they jump off the wagon and they're kind of hiding beside the wagon because the, the, the arrows are coming and crossbows and arrows. It's a mix. And he's, he pulls it out and Artemis tends to it. And they're like, this sucks. We're, you know, we're kind of undercover. What are we going to do? And Artemis is like, well, I could try to do some type of spell that might at least get their attention. You can get in close, but they're kind of in the trees and watching, they can, watching under the wagon. They can see that several of them are sneaking up towards them. Like, we're going to be in melee combat here in a minute. We really don't have any ranged weapons. Darsh did not get any new javelins. And none of these guys use a bow. Dandy's still working on putting her new hoop pack together because she had to start over again, so she doesn't have it ready to be used as a staff sling yet. So they really don't have anything in the way of ranged. So they're like, okay, we're going to have to basically, at this point, our best bet is to charge in. They may not expect that. We've got our shields. If I charge in and I can get into the trees, they're going to have a hard time shooting at us. I'm the biggest target. I'll go first. Mercy, you come in right behind me. Dandy, you try to sneak around if you can because... You're sneaky. And if you can get in behind them, you'll do way more damage in that regard with your daggers. Because she can range dagger, but it's not easy to do that when someone's shooting arrows at you. She gets behind them, way more useful. Rogues have a backstab ability that lets them do a whole lot of damage if they can get a sneaky attack in. At least in second edition. So, this becomes the plan. Darsh is like, okay, let's go. And Darsh goes charging in. They do catch them by surprise. The people They start to turn around and try to run back to the trees. But Darsh, with a full head of steam, and as long as his legs are... He catches up to them very quickly, even before they hit the trees. And with his 
sword literally just slashes two across the back and two of them just hit the ground. The other couple run into the trees and he chases them. Arrows are flinging by him, but he's got his shield up because he does have a shield. And Mercy's right behind him with her shield and they're into the trees. And now there's a bit of a combat going on. Artemis is stuck behind the wagon. There's not really much that she can do. Dandy, on the other hand, is sneaking around, and she's relatively successful. With Darsh's charge, that drew all the attention. Dandy quickly sneaks around into the trees behind, and she finds a couple more in the trees shooting as such, and very quickly from behind starts taking them out. Very assassin-like. She doesn't normally stab to kill unless she has to. She's more like a cut across the back of the legs, you know, cut your arm. She would rather take someone out than kill them. Darsh does not have any problems taking out anybody that needs to be taken out. Not even like it. Darsh will do what needs to be done. Mercy depends on the situation. If her friends are in danger, she won't hold back at all. But if she has the option, she'll normally try not to kill. But Danny doesn't like to kill if she can help it. So she just, you know, stab in the back of the leg, stab in the butt, whatever needs that's going to take them out of the fight, and then they can be dealt with later. It's successful. They're managed to take out most of them. The only problem I have is there's one, one more arch- archer with a crossbow and it's either one or two of them because he's shooting almost in repetition. So how is he shooting that fast? It is not that quick to load a crossbow. So what they're believing is there's either two of them alternating or there's one that's loading one for the other one. And suddenly they get caught in their own trap. The one that's shooting is still shooting, but one comes out from behind them charging in. Darsh turns to deflect the blow, but this person is definitely a bit more skilled. Very likely the leader. He's a bigger guy. But he starts attacking Darsh, and Darsh and him get into a combat. Mercy feeling, and them are kind of still caught down, but trying to defend Darsh from behind from the crossbow bolts that are shooting in. Darsh successfully manages to take out the guy. I'm not going to talk about the whole battle, but he takes the guy out. But by doing so, he leaves himself open to being hit. It's the only way he can do it from the, from the backside. He can get an opening on this guy, but he's probably going to get a crossbow in the back. Not much he can do, or bolt in the back. But as he takes the guy down, opening himself up, flashes of light shoot towards him over his shoulder. And he hears someone scream out in the tree and hit the ground. Well, now he doesn't know what's going on. Darsh is now looking in every direction. And Mercy and Artemis, they're there. Well, Mercy is in Dandy. Artemis, on the other hand, is even more shocked by the young figure who popped out of the back of their wagon. The young lad Tobias has been following them for weeks. Last night, not a dry place to sleep. The only thing he could do was to try to hide in the wagon, but they came out earlier than he expected and could do nothing else but hide in the back of their wagon as they traveled in the rain, hoping they wouldn't notice him or he had the opportunity to get out. When the battle attacked, crossbow arrow almost hit him, but luckily he didn't. When he saw everything was going on, he used one of the very few spells he has, magic missile to shoot at the person that was about to attack Darsh. Magic Missile is a great spell for wizards. A very early one. Shoots little magic missiles of light and energy that hurt. And the best part all, they don't miss. You can see your target. They're going to hit. No aim required. Now, being a very young dude, doesn't have a lot of them, but he is able to shoot out one or two of these little bolts, and he was able to go ahead and and hurt the archer enough that he basically fell then. Mercy and them are able to go in and, and take him out as well. The survivors who were hurt, excuse me, they tie them up because they're going to turn them in. These are criminals. Um, but at the same time, angrily, 
they come to Tobias. Or she's like, I thought I told you to go home. He's like, oops. And Dandy laughs. Mercy and Darcy are like, this is not a thing to laugh about, Dandy. It's still funny, but don't laugh. Because Dan- oops is, when Dandy says oops, something bad is going to happen to the party. But she thought it was funny that somebody else said oops. He's like, all I've ever wanted was a chance to be a wizard, to be a mage. I'm not asking you to, to pay my way. I'm not asking you to give me anything. I just want to get there. And you guys were the safest route that I could find to get there. I apologize to the Hertz. If you want, I will leave. He goes, but I'm old enough to make my own decisions. And I've decided I want to go to Paxable. And they're like, we owe you a little bit. You can travel with us to Paxwell. At that point, you're on your own. If you can get in and be the wizard's things, we do not want your family angry at us that we did it. We'll get you here. You can travel with us the rest of the way. We owe you that. But then you're on your own. He's like, I'm totally cool with that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So young Tobias, for a short while, joins the party. I love Tobias. It's later in the day, they come across another roving group of guards. They explain the situation, and the guards are like, ooh, we've actually heard of these brigands. That's one of the reasons we're out here, looking for these type of guys. So, uh, excellent. Thank you very much. They basically take him into custody, take your statements, all that kind of stuff. The leader, who uh, was killed, they they bring the bodies. They don't see any bodies sitting on the ground. That's rude. They're like, we have them in our wagon, away from our food stores. And like, this was a known criminal. This was a leader of brigand. You took him out. We appreciate that. They're like, and they, they, the one guy, it stopped raining by this point. And they're like, okay. He, the guy's like, hold on a minute. He writes basically a letter on a scroll. And he goes, give this to the captain of the guard at Paxiwal. And uh, you'll be rewarded. There's a, there's, a, there's a reward out for this guy. They're like, well, that's excellent. Okay, thank you for taking him off our hands and so on and so forth. And they travel in the rest of the way to Paxiwal. They arrived at Paxiwal a couple days later. Paxiwal is a huge city. It's by far larger than any of the cities that they've come across on Merge World. Uh, it's almost three times the size of Arduel, which was the biggest city they'd come across before this. Um, massive. And there is a great wall around it. But imagine this city used to be twice as big, but half of it is missing because there now is an ocean there. Um, the wall literally stops at one point on one side. The other one, it goes to the sea. The other one just stops and it's kind of crumbled where part of it went missing and the supports fell and it just kind of fell off. Obviously, it's being repaired some, it's being worked on, but it's it's a massive wall. Probably took decades to build the original one. But it's a very clean-looking town. But the smell of water and the salt air, Darsh loves that. Darsh, his family, I mentioned previously, <clears throat> was a seafaring group. Merchants owned ships and such. Darsh loves the smell of the ocean. He liked Arduel for that same way as well, because it was on the, the edge of a sea, which they do learn is on the same group of water. It's just further to the east. So if you're looking at a map, right, Arduel is here. They've basically gone all the way up and around to here. Right? East to west. Yeah, or the other way around. The other way around, I apologize. They went all the way up to here. So they went up and around to get there. But they get there, and of course, there's plenty of people going in and out, wagons of goods and such, and everyone's relatively friendly. Lots of guards, as there should be, and such, um, a city of this size. Um, but you can see it's very well defended, and the distance that they've had to come before they found any real major civilization or a city big enough to hurt them, um, protection is almost moot here, 
because they're going to know an army is coming long before they're ever going to hit the city. In fact, there are more protections at this point on the other side of Paxiwal, on the water's edge, because Navy is different. Their city, city pretty much literally goes to the water. Imagine that. Half the city disappeared, and now there's a lake there. It's not like the city ended, and then there was a bunch of docks and such. Literally, the water comes up to the edge of what was streets. They've worked. They've ripped down some buildings, and they've built up docks, and they've got a pretty good port built up there at this point. Um, a city of this size and the money that it has was very, very quickly able to build that and then start getting into building ships. You kind of have to. If you were a, a farming kingdom in the middle of the plains and now you're on the edge of the water, fishing and sea is definitely going to be your source of trade and food. That's a big thing. But number two, you don't know what enemies are coming and you need to be able to protect yourself. And these guys had to learn how to get a navy. And they had to learn how to do it very quick. Paxiwal is an awesome city. And the two biggest things of Paxiwal is the temple, which is on the east side of Paxiwal. And then there's the mage tower on the west side of Paxiwal. Paxiwal itself does not have a king. It has a council. It's very democratic. There is a leader, democratically chosen, um, but there are different groups that have a vote. The temple has three votes. The mage tower has three votes. The merchant's Guild has two votes. You see where I'm coming from that. The military has a vote. The Navy, you know, so they had to have a Navy and Navy got a vote. The way that it's broken up is that different groups have a vote based on importance and relevance. Um, but the city is more than anything else ruled over by the mages and the priests because um, the priests are of the good nature and the mages are smack neutral. There are good, evil, and neutral mages in that tower. But in Paxiwal, you don't bring trouble. The, the mages, regardless of alignment, will not tolerate another mage coming in and causing problems. They keep their own peace when it comes to the magic side. Um, so they not only protect, they have a very high sway over what happens in the city, these two groups. Um, but again, they, for respect reasons, and because you, you don't want to make your merchants angry, now you have a you know, navy and such you didn't have before, you have the military. It's all run by a council, and there is a leader of the council, but we're not going to talk about him yet. Because their first goal... They want to get to the temple. And they want to do that for a couple of reasons. One, they want to get rid of this box. They're here to deliver it. Number two, the whole reason they came here was to come to this temple. This is what they were looking for. They're hoping that someone here is going to be able to help them find the rest of the Vistani stones. Now, Artemis, very smartly, under the recommendation of Dandy, actually, um, took some blue cloth of like one of her spare robes and ripped it up. And she's wrapped it around her staff covering up the lifestone. So it looks more like just like a blue decoration of her rank kind of thing. Um, it's easier to talk about that. They decided that, you know, there may be other stones in the area, and especially if I'm going to be talking to mages, they don't want this magical artifact stone just out in their, everybody's face. So that's how they keep it hidden while she still gets to keep her staff on her. So again, she can feel the aura of her staff, but you don't feel anything unless you touch it. You touch it and you can sense the staff has magic. It's part of the Vistani stone things. It does make it obvious the thing you're, it's merged to is um, of that nature. Now, Tobias, of course, at this point, uh, thanks them for coming. I'm heading to the Mage Tower. I know you guys are going to the temple. and I Because he's learned a lot about their adventures and such while they've been traveling the last couple of days. And he knows some of it just from eavesdropping and talking to people in towns after they've left. But he, his dream is right there. He can see the Mage Tower. 
He's like, I am going to go and basically hurl myself at the feet of the mages and beg for someone to take me on as apprentice or let me enter into the mage school or whatever it is. His actually training is a little bit further than uh, most apprentices would have because he's so much self-taught and with his own family. Sorry, weird noise. Um, and so he's got a little bit of, a, hopefully, a head start there, but of course that means he's also behind in other things as well. So he's like, I bid you a, well, a farewell. I, I, hopefully our paths will cross again. You guys are nice people. Thank you very much. And so he goes and he heads out that direction because you can see the tower. It's really big. It's over there. But they're like, we're going to go to Paxiwal. Or to the, to, the, to the temple. Which they do. And they arrive at the temple. And the temple itself has its own set of Templars. So the temple has its own mini military in there. And it's tight. And they have a very, very strong group of Templars. Not only are the Templars just knights, some of them are the equivalent of paladins themselves. Um, the Templars, there's, there's a section of them that are there because they work for the temple, and then there's, this, there's an inner group that are usually the run, lead those groups, because they are holy Templars. They are literally almost like mini-clerics themselves, or are full paladins based on their rank. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in the future when we talk about them. I just want to give a brief overview of that. Um, but they go in and they're like, hi, we're here this, and they keep the box hidden, because they don't know what you know exactly in there, and they're like, hey, we would like to talk to somebody in charge. Uh, they bring Artemis being an elven cleric again, elven clerics Elves just themselves, not the most commonly walking around race, so they're pretty excited by that. They're like, oh yes, a cleric of Tavian, you're definitely welcome here. And they meet with uh, a couple of the lower level clerics, and they're talking to, well, I mean, not the lowest, but, you know, higher rank, but not the top. And they kind of give their story. And, uh, of course, one that comes to talk to her is a, is a higher ranking of Tavian. That's who you would send to speak to a cleric of Tavian. They decide at this point their best bet is to just throw everything on the table. They want help from the... They think keeping anything is not good. And they tell their story to this cleric who is just sitting there and taking notes and then at one point just sitting down the, the quill and is just kind of looking at them and like, yes, of course I know about the battle. Of course we heard about the castle that fell out of the sky. And oddly enough, they find out that that valley is known as the Valley of Sacrifice. Because so many lost their lives there to try to stop this force, and so many groups came together to do it. It was known as a, a very important thing, and it actually opened up a large amount of um, goodwill between some of the different factions in this section of Merge World. The Knights, the Knights of Firemoon, Paxiwal, because um, when this was all done, they had to go somewhere, right? Um, so there's that, that opened up the door to a lot of people. And they even knew of a group of people that were in this. They didn't know all their names, but, you know... The, they know these guys are the ones they're talking about. And they're like, okay, wow, this is this is serious stuff. And she's like, I would like you, if you wouldn't mind, because they didn't get to the part of the box yet. <laughs> she's like, this is, if you wouldn't mind bearing with me. Uh, you've told me about the stones, about these artifacts, about Nihilat, the darkness, Rafe Firemoon. You've told me all this stuff. I really think that you need to speak with Sister Mare. And they're like, Okay, who is Sister Mary? And she goes, Sister Mary is the high priest of Tav priestess of Tavian. She's the top dog here. She's not the head priest of the temple, but she is head of all of, of this. She is literally an incredibly high-ranked priestess. And they're like, yeah, okay. And she goes, if you'll wait, I'm going to go set something up. So they're in there. Food and drink are brought to them. They get to eat a little bit. <laughs> and, <laughs> sorry, I love it. While they're sitting there, a couple more people are brought in to talk, to hang out. And 
They are shocked, and Mercy and uh, Dandy is delighted, to find that the two other people that are brought in to eat with them, also visitors, is a black-haired elf, not Shadow, and a kender. And they come in and they and they're brought in like and the Kender of course immediately goes over to Dandy and they start talking real fast and then they sit down on the floor and they're showing each other this is what I found I've got this feather from here and they're just the whole thing. The elf comes over and introduces himself as Zach. He says it's short for his for a longer name but you can just call him Zach. Oh, hitting the table is transferring to the mic. I apologize. I didn't realize I was hitting the table. I am sorry about that. Thank you, Neon. Um. But uh, he says, I'm Zach, and this is Twill. And he's my, seems to stop for thinking about it, traveling companion. And we're, we visit through here occasionally and are always welcome in, in, the, uh, in the temple because he tells their story that they're good friends and what they're doing is they're making maps. They're traveling the world. They're trying to make maps. They're documenting areas. They're finding where stuff is. They're basically on the adventure of discovering Merge World. And they make very accurate maps. Twill draws incredibly accurate maps. Distances and everything. And Zack is like his buddy, almost like a protector. You can tell that he has a, he's constantly keeping his eye out at Twill to make sure Twill's okay. But uh, Zack is, is very calm to talk to. He has a very calm demeanor. An overwhelming amount of confidence. And not in an arrogant way. Not egotistical. Just in a, I'm talking to you and I don't have any worries about anything in my life right now. Let me introduce you to Zach and Twill. So, they join them for the meal and they're having a conversation and Twill and Dandy are chatting on and talking about maps and talking about where they've been and Dandy's telling parts of her story and Twill's telling parts of his story and everybody else is like really just kind of talking to Zach who just sit there kind of smiles and he's not eating much. He is drinking some of the wine but he's not eating much. Um, but he just kind of, it's almost like he has a regal feel to him. Like you, It's like, oh, I'm sitting next to a king or a prince. He has that feel about him that he's just very confident. He knows what he is. He's... He has a sword. He's not dressed in wizard's robes. He's not a cleric. Just a guy with a sword. But he is uh, very confident and very friendly. Um, and very intelligent. That's a big thing. When, you t- when, they, when he's speaking to them, they, they pick up on this as someone who knows a lot. And they're enjoying their meal and hanging out. And uh, Zach and uh, Twill kind of talking about the most recent thing where they said, oh, yes, the value of sacrifice. We mapped that. And they actually pull out and, and show some maps of the area that show exactly kind of the treks in this area where people have been. Zach looks like Zachary Quinto. Zach is Zachary Quinto. <laughs> I mean, that is Zachary Quinto. Oddly enough, when I when I created him, I picked Zach. I went and found the uh, the, uh, the, art, the, the, the actor afterwards. Uh, but yes, Zachary Quinto is is the uh, the guy who looks who is Zach, and then Twill is um, the kid from that '70s show. Um, who I'm a big fan of him as an actor, but he definitely has that young-hearted Kender look to me. Uh, so they travel, and, and Twill pulls out, and and the maps he had they're beautiful. Topher Grace, that's who it is. Yeah, Topher Grace. I forgot his name for a second. So yes, it's Zachary Quinto and Topher Grace. For those of you who are listening in the audio, uh, you can of course see those pictures on 
onlydraven.com. I'll have those all up there tomorrow when I post the podcast. So if you're listening to this on iTunes, definitely swing by the website and you can see pictures of all the people I've been talking about. Um, but they're looking at his maps and they're beautiful. And they're really well made. Like, exact distances and such. And they're like, I, I mean, that that's kind of hard to do. I mean, these are beautiful, perfect, top-down design this and it's this many exact miles and this to that and so on and so forth here's the roads and they're like how accurate are these and Zach goes they're perfectly accurate Twill only does accurate maps and we're having a great time in fact now we're going to be heading west over the mountain range we've done much to the north and to the east uh, but we've not gone west of the mountains yet and that's where we're going now but I promised Twill that we'd stop by and say hi to the to the temple uh, because he always likes to tell his stories of where they've been, and they always leave their maps here, where the priests basically copy them out and enter them into their library, and then when they come back, they get the old ones and give the new ones. So they still have all theirs, of course, but they do drop their maps off here so that they can be they can be made and shared with other people, and that's been incredibly helpful to Paxwell. So these guys are really, really well appreciated and have a lot of leeway. They can open up pretty much any door they want at this point. Um, and they're like, oh, do you, the party's like, do you travel by ship? Uh, do you, you know, you have horses? Or how do you get around? They're like, oh, we, we travel a lot of different ways, mostly by foot, of course. But, uh, you know, we make our way around perfectly fine. But we're heading west tomorrow, and we, uh, we just stopped by to drop off the, the maps of the sea. We've only traveled a short distance into the sea, um, before we turned around. Really wasn't, once we saw, the islands, we just kind of came back. They're like islands? And they're like, yes, uh, there's the islands of Kronayar to the south. Um, a couple days traveled into the water. They're like, Kronayar, okay. Um, is that a human settlement? And Zach smiles a little bit and looks at Darsh and goes, no, it's actually a minotaur kingdom. Darsh. Really? Yes, actually, several islands. Um, oddly enough, the islands themselves are all from different worlds, but all islands home to different minotaurs. And so they have basically factioned together to become the new kingdom of Kronayar. Kronayar being the primary island and the largest of the three islands. Um, the other two have merged up under that one as well. And he says, do you know what, and Darcy's like, do you know what world they're from? Because he's looking from his world. And for very important reasons, I never say the world they're from. We'll find more about that later. But if you're ever wondering, no, I've never said what world the name of any of the worlds these guys have come from. And Zach goes, no, I'll be honest, I didn't ask. So many worlds became part of this new land that we've, cra we've traveled probably across hundreds of them at this point. Uh, so keeping track of all the names, what they were isn't important. It's what they are now. That's the question. And Zach leans in, he goes... All of this seems chaos. All of this craziness. He, of course, doesn't know the, the story. They haven't told him all about Rafe and Nylat yet. He goes, it's like the world was just thrown together. But at the same time, there's an order to it. Of all the places in this massive new world, for three islands from different worlds, populated purely by minotaurs, all within a short distance of each other. Seems awfully coincidental, doesn't it? He goes, and that's what Twill and I are looking for. What's caused 
the order in all this chaos. Something's behind it. He goes, there's just too many coincidences. The party's like, look at each other like, well, we know a little bit about that, but I don't know if we should tell that to you yet, but uh, you smile. At that point, a cleric comes in and says, right, if you would come with me, Sister Mara's ready to see you now. Zach and Twill uh, wish everybody goodbye. Uh, they shake Zach's hands. They uh, shake Twill's hands from a distance away, not letting him close to their pouches. Um, <laughs> Zach does the same thing with Dandy. Uh, but they wish each other well and hope that they will see each other again someday. And I say that's very likely. They are escorted through the temple uh, to the very inner sanctum area to a conference room. And then it is a long oval table, multiple chairs. And they're invited into seat. Um, and after they're sitting down, they're given drinks, whatever. Three clerics come into the room. Now, Artemis immediately rises. The other one's not guys not sure what to do. They okay, they stand up as well. Because these three clerics that are walked in here are all overwhelmingly high in rank. Lady Mara, who is the that's not her. That's the wrong button. Lady Mara is the High Cleric of Tavian, God of Healing. She is the third ranked of the three clerics there. And if you're not familiar with who that is, you may know the character. She played Counselor Troy in Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm describing this for the audio uh, but she is cleric of Tavian, and a v probably the highest rank cleric that Artemis has ever met. Because you can tell by the robes and the symbols and the such that's on there. Even though from different worlds, a lot of that stuff stays very consistent. That's important. You think I'm a god in this world, I'm a god in that world. My teachings are going to have some similarities, even though they're from different worlds. So that is Sister Mara. Next is Brother Lycos. Brother Lycos is the High Cleric of Mavael, God of Knowledge, which is the head god of neutrality. He is a very, very old elven cleric. I'm sure you recognize Sister Mara looks like Marina Sirtis. Yes, she does. <laughs> Marina Sirtis is... Sister Mara and Spock himself is Brother Lycos. Yes, Leonard Nimoy. His, now, it, with the exception that he's almost bald. His hair is very, very thinned out. He's got a little bit of wisps in the back. As far as elves go, he's very, very old. But he doesn't seem frail. Just very old. But he's also, again, Cleric of the God of Knowledge, which is the head of the Neutrality Gods. And the last one is Brother Bartholomew. Or Brother Bart, what Dandy likes to call him. Who is the Cleric, High Cleric of Menara, Goddess of Light, which is the primary god of good. And that is Patrick Stewart. Yes, all three of them are from Star Trek. Didn't plan it that way when I originally made the characters, but when I found the actors, they just it all worked out very well. 
Brother Bartholomew, while also being the highest ranked of the um, clerics of light, is the highest ranked cleric in the temple. He's He runs the temple per se, although the three of them together make all major decisions. They are the three votes of the council when they're involved. They introduce themselves, ask the companions to be seated, and they say, you know, we would like to hear your story. I know you've already told it to clear up what's her name. They know the name. I don't remember it now. But we would like to hear it from the beginning. And please, we'd like all the details that you have. It's important that we know everything that's happening. And then they're like, okay, and by the way, here's that box. And they set that down and all of them almost fall out of their chair. Except for Lycos, who leans in, staring at it. He goes, where did you get that? Dandy, never short for words, says, oh, we've got it for brother... What's his name? She knows his name. Back in this town, he was sent years ago to find these doors, and he had to go in the doors, but he couldn't get in the doors. He found the first door, but he couldn't get through the other doors. And he was supposed to get this box. He'd been looking at it for like forever. And then he asked us to get it because he said he we said we needed some help. He said, if you bring the box, maybe they'll like you more. So we went and got the box, and there was all sorts of zombies, and there was these big bats, and this giant rock thing with snotty tentacles grabbed her leg, and it wasn't very friendly. And everybody else is just sitting there, and then the clerics are looking at her, like, trying to make pieces of it. And she, and then finally, she, she, Darsh just puts his hand on her shoulder and says, that, that's enough, Danny. She's like, oh, I jumped to the good stuff. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump to the good stuff. We'll get there. And they tell the story, from beginning to where we are right now, in probably better detail than I've told it. But giving them absolutely everything. And even though they're all just enthralled with this story, their eyes keep flitting to that box, especially like us. Which does not pass the party's inspection, especially Mercy. Mercy's very, very okay. You guys are paying a lot of attention to the box. You're hearing us, but you're really interested in that box. Once the story's off, the clerics just kind of sit there for a minute, taking it all in, and they're like, Brother Bart says, First thing I want to say, thank you very much for assisting our brother in bringing us this box. It is definitely something that does not need to be out there unguarded. And we will see to its protection. What is it? says Dandy, interrupting him. We, we would like a little bit of time to go over the information you've given us and uh, just kind of take that all in. Um, we will answer, of course, questions that you have, but let me begin by saying first, we are going to help you. Um, it is clear that the gods themselves have chosen you for in a very important task. And you were brought here? Yeah. We're all knowledgeable enough to know that those type of coincidences don't happen. You were brought to our doorstep for a reason. And you've been put into our hands to, to help you move forward on a quest that really could be the most important thing to happen on this new world. It's going to take us a little time to kind of discuss this and figure out exactly how best to help you. So, with your permission, we will take the box and see to its placement. And then, you're welcome to stay with us. It may take a few days. We're going to need to do some talking, reach out to some of our, our people and discuss this. But 
course, you're welcome to stay here. Um, anything you have need of, the temple will provide you. You, of course, feel free to roam the city. You're not prisoners by any means. You're honored guests in this situation. And it may take us some time to figure out exactly the best way to help you. Would you allow us a couple of days to look into this? Artemis is like, of course we will. We appreciate everything that you can do to help, no matter what it is. Um, definitely, again, the gods have brought us into your hand. Uh, Tavian, we were only doing Tavian's will, you know, the clear talk, Tavian's will, and any way you can help us in this, in helping this uh, demigod Zoltan, and to get this finally done so that maybe everything can be put back together. Nothing else, we can free our gods so that they can, they can join with us. They're let out. The clear comes back in, leads them out, so on and so forth. They spend the next few days doing just that, going around Paxiwal. Uh, they do go see the head of the guards. Um, head of the guards is a gentleman named Clay, and uh, he's head of the military. Militia! That's the word I couldn't think of earlier. Militia! Thank you. Sorry. Just hit me. <laughs> the town Militia. The, the group of militia, militia, he's head of them, um, of the land forces. The Navy now has their own head as well. But Clay is the head of the, the, the militia itself and the city guard and everything that basically protects it northeast and west. South in the water is all under the Navy. And he's like, oh, yes, I had received message that you'd helped with them and so on and so forth. I'd also received message from the temple that you were guests of the temple, and that we should assist you in any way. So definitely, thank you very much. There was a reward. Give them a small bag of coins. They have a little bit of money there. They're looking around town. Now, as they're looking around town, this place has a huge market. And in the market, you can find about anything. But most importantly, in the market, people come from other places. And they find out that there is an actual section of it which is held by the craftsmen and traders from Kronear, the Minotaur Islands. Very important to Darsh that he goes in there and talks to them to see if any of them are from his world. So they go to the market, everybody's looking around, they run into the odd kender, see a few elves, there's some dwarves kicking around, all the classic races you'd expect to find. But they do go to a basically the minotaur section of the market, which is like in a corner and there's several booths where they come over basically in a minotaur ship, unload their wares, it's sold, it goes back. This is the closest and they learn very quickly that Paxawal and Kronayar at this point have an open trading agreement. They are peaceful to each other, they're not hardcore allies or anything, but they do have trade deals in place. Kronayar realizing this is the closest kingdom and way too big. They're, they're, they're definitely outnumbered by Paxwell. Kronayar, having plenty of minotaurs and being great warriors, they're not going to be able to take Paxwell. Their navy's better, but once they get on land, they'll be swarmed. So the minotaurs decided at this point, they reached out. Oh, hey, we are. Paxwell actually initiated, but there are trade agreements between those two kingdoms. They've also opened up trade agreements with Arduel. So there's a faction from King Christopher. He's not here, but there's a faction from his city as well. They also learn that there's another large city on the other side of that mountain range to the west. And they are currently in talks of opening trade with them as well. That, is real, that kingdom is ruled by a king. It's about the size of Arduel, not as big as Paxwell. They're learning a little bit about the area. They're going to be here for a while. These things become important. Darsh does speak to a few of the, the Minotaurs because they say, yeah, occasionally a Minotaur will come in and that all minute there's an open invitation 
for all Minotaur kin to come to Kronear. Why would you not build your forces? Anyone, regardless of your world of origin, Kronear has open arms if you're a Minotaur. If you're other races, you want to trade, we'll talk about it. If you're Kender, don't even think about it. Danny's a little put off by that and stomps off. <laughs> but, you know, not unheard of. But they, uh, there's when he starts naming off his world and such, they're like, no, I, I, I don't know anyone of that specifically. The three islands are not from that. But a lot of other Minotaur have come in from other worlds once they hear about this and have settled there. So it's possible some of your kin or countrymen may be there, but they're not. The, neither of the three islands are from his world. Dar's a little bummed by that, but still gives him a little bit of hope that maybe someone, friend or family, might be there as well. They buy themselves a couple goods here and there. They buy themselves a couple things. They got some coins in their pocket. And they finally make their their way back to the temple. You know, they're there a couple of days. And they're summoned to come see the clerics. They're taken into the same room. They go in there. But this time, it's just two of them. Brother Bart and Sister Mara. And they're like, oh, Brother Lycos isn't here. That's too bad. And they say, Brother Lycos is away. We'll talk about that in a moment. First, I want you to know that we have thought long and hard about your situation. And as we said, we're going to do everything we can to help you. We know that you're searching for these stones and the importance of them to you to get them. So that way you can get these artifacts back. And then you can basically potentially set the world right or unlock the world, whatever the case may be. We are going to do everything within our power to help you. As such, we have reached out to our allies in the wizards community and we've set up a meeting for you to meet with their leaders as well well we definitely share knowledge we feel it's best that you tell the story again in your words to them and they've agreed to look into potentially helping you as well the next thing i need to talk about is that box you've created quite a problem for us From our research and from our talks with the cleric that sent you to get it, well, in a relatively book-smart man, not the wisest. Nothing against him personally. We're only speaking truth here. And from what we've learned, we can only assume he was sent there because he discovered it and because they never figured he'd ever be able to get in there. It was a way of removing a problem. When we learned of what was there and what his quest was, we felt the same way. At that point, it had been 19 years he'd been trying, and he was no step closer than he was six years ago. We felt leaving him there to do that, making sure he knew not to tell anyone else, was the safest thing that could be done to make sure that this box never again saw the light of day. We never foresaw that he'd seek out outside help. He was not supposed to. Don't judge me for this next part. I did it for a reason. That box contains the essence of a goddess. Part of it, anyways. Many years ago, the goddess Pandora, who is, for the record, Pandora is the goddess of deception, attempted to have herself born into a living form in an attempt to take over one of the many worlds 
that she rules over, like we do, or like our, our gods do. And she was defeated by a group of chosen holy warriors who were able to stop that event from happening and to split asunder that essence. She's still a goddess. She still has the same powers in goddess uh, as any of the gods do. But this essence was locked away in different boxes. And only if they're ever combined would she ever have the ability to again take physical form on any mortal world. There are three boxes, and you found one of them. We don't know where the other two are. We know only that inside that box is a source of chaos that likes the world as these worlds, our world, has never seen. We know of it. One of them was on our world. The other two were on another. This is not the box that was on our world, because the brother you spoke of is not from our world. Somehow, I can only assume, these three boxes were pulled to this new world and are here now. And it is of the utmost importance that they be protected. Brother Lycos is not with us because he is currently protecting the box. The three of us are the only ones we know strong enough to have the correct level of protection of magic to be able to protect it. So at all times, one of us will have to be protecting this box, at least until we can find a way to hide it or lock it away where it can't be found again. Clearly, where it was hidden before was not as well hidden as we thought. Nothing against you. You were only trying to help, and we appreciate it. And if nothing else, you've helped us find a flaw. If you could get in there, so could others. So it is probably best that these this now be hidden somewhere else. And in our, in our protection is the best place for it to be. It will definitely cause some difficulty as one of the three of us will have to be with it at all times. Brother Lycos is no longer in the city. He's protecting it in a place where we know it'll, it'll be safe, at least in the time being. But I want you not to think about the box. You need not worry about that anymore. That's another story. You have your own quest to deal on, and we'll deal with the box. What we want, again, we're going to supply you with any supplies you need. We're going to send out our information, you know, our, our source of information, reach out to the cities and the people we have, and see if anyone has heard anything of these gems. You said several of them landed in the Valley of Sacrifice. That's where they have to, at least a couple of them have to be around here somewhere. And if they're as powerful as you say, I can only assume someone is using them in some way. So we're going to look into that. Again, you may continue here as our guest. You may leave if you like. You are in no way a prisoner. But we would recommend staying in the city, so that way, should we get something, we can get in touch with you immediately. On the morrow, we have arranged for you to be able to meet with the High Mage, uh, High Mages, the Mage Tower, um, and when you when you go there, uh, they will definitely want to hear your story and have some other information they'll want to share with you as well. It's not our place to share it. I think it's best you speak with them. Does that sound acceptable? And they're like, well, yes. Sorry about the box. But yes, we appreciate all the help that you can give us. Uh, we appreciate all you've done already. And definitely, we'll hang out. If you find out anything, please let us know. We'll take whatever steps we need to, to get these nine gems back together so we can hopefully get everything fixed. Yeah, Brother Barcos, I am going to be entering into the temple, into the, the high prayer room this evening, and I will be praying for guidance of how best to help you. Give us time and we'll do everything we can to help you on your quest. 
They thank him. The group is let out. And they spend several days around the city. The next day they go to meet the mages. But that's a whole nother story. And that part we're going to talk about next time. We've been running for right about 2 hours and 16 minutes, which is about the average time we've been running on these. I try not to go super long with Merge World. Um, only because um, if it gets too long, uh, it gets too big for me to be able to host it on iTunes through my hosting program. So I have to keep it to around a 2-hour mark. But... Um, that's going to kind of do us for today. If you have any questions, I'll hit it here for a minute. If you have any questions about what we just went over, if I can answer them, I definitely will. Uh, suggestions, things you'd like to see or hear. Uh, if you did enjoy the stream and you've been hanging out, please be sure to click like. If you're watching this later, click the like button if you're enjoying the story. Uh, more importantly, be sure to hit subscribe if you haven't. That way you can see all the videos, streams, and such as they come up. Um, as I've mentioned, you can go to onlydraven.com uh, where you can find, um, if you don't have iTunes but you'd like the audio version, you can stream them directly off of the website. Uh, or you can go to iTunes and just do a search for Merged Worlds, all one word. Um, and there is a podcast there. If you swing by there, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mind uh, slapping a rating or maybe even a, a feedback on the podcast. Definitely the, the more ratings and feedback that the more it advertise it so that other people can see it. Uh, let's see. Neon Silver. In game mechanics, what level does a high cleric need to be qualified? In this situation, if I was to lay them out, uh, Brother Bart's probably around level 18. Lycos and Mara are probably between 15 and 17. Uh, again, this is second edition rules, so I, it's hard for me to compare that to current fifth edition because I'm not sure if those equate the same. Uh, but most of the time, a character would be retired before it gets that high because at that point, you're pretty boss and it's going to be hard to find stuff that you can't defeat. You know, without facing gods and stuff yourself. Uh, but that would be the levels. Thank you very much, Neon, for the question. Um, but again, also on uh, the website, you'll find uh, links to my streaming schedule, links to all my videos, links to these, the pictures of the characters. you also find the ODG store if you'd like to get some ODG merch or um, there's some Merge World stuff there too. I've got my first Merge World shirt. I've got another shirt that hopefully, a new design that I have somebody I have Shadow working on that I'll hopefully have in the next few weeks when I have money to pay for it. Uh, but I have a cool design I'm, I'm pulling out for that as well. Uh, but definitely, I'd love to hear from anybody. Please throw comments down in here if you have any questions. Uh, you can also join our Discord. The link is down in the description of this uh, stream and all my videos. Or you can come to onlydraven.com at the top. There's a link to get into Discord. We have threads there. We chat about Merge World as well, as well as all the different games we stream in Minecraft and all that stuff. So uh, it has been a pleasure hanging out and chatting with you all tonight. I know I ran a little longer than normal. I appreciate you hanging out with me. Um, next time, we are going to be setting out on our search for the stones. So I look forward to, to getting into that part of the story with you. But I'm going to call that one a day. Again, thank you to everyone. Thank you. Special thanks to all of my members, part of the membership program. I appreciate you as well. And always, always a special thanks to my moderators, Neon and Gus, for helping me keep everything up and running adequately. <laughs> thank you all very much. I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful evening. And we will see you two weeks from now for some more Merch World. Have a great day. <laughs>